Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne Part 1 Chapter 18 Cyrus Harding's project had succeeded, but according to his usual habit he showed no satisfaction. With closed lips and a fixed look, he remained motionless. Herbert was in ecstasies. Neb bounded with joy. Pencroft nodded his great head, murmuring these words, "'Come, our engineer gets on capitally!' The nitroglycerin had indeed acted powerfully. The opening which it had made was so large that the volume of water which escaped through this new outlet was at least treble that which before passed through the old one. The result was that a short time after the operation the level of the lake would be lowered two feet or more. The settlers went to the chimneys to take some pickaxes, iron-tipped spears, string made of fibres, flint, and steel. They then returned to the plateau, Top accompanying them. On the way the sailor could not help saying to the engineer, "'Don't you think, Captain, that by means of that charming liquid you have made, one could blow up the whole of our island?' "'Without any doubt, the island, continents, and the world itself,' replied the engineer. "'It is only a question of quantity.' "'Then could you not use this nitroglycerin for loading firearms?' asked the sailor. No, Pencroft, for it is too explosive a substance. But it would be easy to make some gun-cotton, or even ordinary powder, as we have azotic acid, saltpetre, sulphur, and coal. Unhappily, it is the guns which we have not got. Oh, Captain, replied the sailor, with a little determination. Pencroft had erased the word impossible from the dictionary of Lincoln Island. The settlers, having arrived on Prospect Heights, went immediately towards that point of the lake near which was the old opening now uncovered. This outlet had now become practicable, since the water no longer rushed through it, and it would doubtless be easy to explore the interior. In a few minutes the settlers had reached the lower point of the lake, and a glance showed them that the object had been attained. In fact, in the side of the lake, and now above the surface of the water, appeared the long-looked-for opening. A narrow ridge, left bare by the retreat of the water, allowed them to approach it. This orifice was nearly twenty feet in width, but scarcely two in height. It was like the mouth of a drain at the edge of a pavement, 
and therefore did not offer an easy passage to the settlers. But Neb and Pencroft, taking their pickaxes, soon made it of a suitable height. The engineer then approached, and found that the sides of the opening, in its upper part at least, had not a slope of more than from thirty to thirty-five degrees. It was therefore practicable, and, provided that the declivity did not increase, it would be easy to descend even to the level of the sea. If then, as was probable, some vast cavity existed in the interior of the granite, it might perhaps be of great use. "'Well, Captain, what are we stopping for?' asked the sailor, impatient to enter the narrow passage. "'You see, Top has got before us.' "'Very well,' replied the engineer. "'But we must see our way. Neb, go and cut some resinous branches.' Neb and Herbert ran to the edge of the lake, shaded with pines and other green trees, and soon returned with some branches, which they made into torches. The torches were lighted with flint and steel, and Cyrus Harding leading, the settlers ventured into the dark passage, which the overplus of the lake had formerly filled. Contrary to what might have been supposed, the diameter of the passage increased as the explorers proceeded, so that they very soon were able to stand upright. The granite, worn by the water for an infinite time, was very slippery, and falls were to be dreaded but the settlers were all attached to each other by a cord, as is frequently done in ascending mountains. Happily some projections of the granite, forming regular steps, made the descent less perilous. Drops, still hanging from the rocks, shone here and there under the light of the torches, and the explorers guessed that the sides were clothed with innumerable stalactites. The engineer examined this black granite. There was not a stratum, not a break in it. The mass was compact, and of an extremely close grain. The passage dated, then, from the very origin of the island. It was not the water which little by little had hollowed it. Pluto, and not Neptune, had bored it with his own hand, and on the wall traces of an eruptive work could be distinguished, which all the washing of the water had not been able totally to efface. The settlers descended very slowly. They could not but feel a certain awe in thus venturing into these unknown depths, for the first time visited by human beings. They did not speak, but they thought, and the thought came to more than one, that some polypus or other gigantic cephalopod might inhabit the interior cavities which were in communication with the sea. However, Top kept at the head of the little band, and they could rely on the sagacity of the dog who would not fail to give the alarm if there was any need for it. After having descended about a hundred feet, following a winding road, Harding, who was walking on before, stopped, and his companions came up with him. The place where they had halted was wider, so as to form a cavern of moderate dimensions. Drops of water fell from the vault, but that did not prove that they oozed through the rock. They were simply the last traces left by the torrent which had so long thundered through this cavity, and the air there was pure, though slightly damp, but producing no mephitic exhalation. "'Well, my dear Cyrus,' said Gideon Spilett, "'here is a very secure retreat, well hid in the depths of the rock, but it is, however, uninhabitable.' "'Why uninhabitable?' asked the sailor. "'Because it is too small and too dark.' 
"'Couldn't we enlarge it, hollow it out, make openings to let in light and air?' replied Pencroft, who now thought nothing impossible. "'Let us go on with our exploration,' said Cyrus Harding. "'Perhaps lower down nature will have spared us this labour. "'We have only gone a third of the way,' observed Herbert. "'Nearly a third, replied Harding, "'for we have descended a hundred feet from the opening, "'and it is not impossible that a hundred feet farther down—' "'Where is Top?' asked Neb, interrupting his master. They searched the cavern, but the dog was not there. "'Most likely he has gone on,' said Pencroft. "'Let us join him,' replied Harding. The descent was continued. The engineer carefully observed all the deviations of the passage, and notwithstanding so many detours, he could easily have given an account of its general direction which went towards the sea. The settlers had gone some fifty feet farther, when their attention was attracted by distant sounds which came up from the depths. They stopped and listened. These sounds, carried through the passage as through an acoustic tube, came clearly to the ear. "'That is Top barking!' cried Herbert. "'Yes,' replied Pencroft, "'and our brave dog is barking furiously.' "'We have our iron-tipped spears,' said Cyrus Harding. Keep on your guard, and forward. "'It is becoming more and more interesting,' murmured Gideon Spilett in the sailor's ear, who nodded. Harding and his companions rushed to the help of their dog. Top's barking became more and more perceptible, and it seemed strangely fierce. Was he engaged in a struggle with some animal whose retreat he had disturbed? Without thinking of the danger to which they might be exposed, the explorers were now impelled by an irresistible curiosity, and in a few minutes, sixteen feet lower, they rejoined Top. There the passage ended in a vast and magnificent cavern. Top was running backwards and forwards, barking furiously. Pencroft and Neb, waving their torches, threw the light into every crevice, and at the same time Harding, Gideon Spilett, and Herbert, their spears raised, were ready for any emergency which might arise. The enormous cavern was empty. The settlers explored it in every direction. There was nothing there, not an animal, not a human being, and yet Top continued to bark. Neither caresses nor threats could make him be silent. "'There must be a place somewhere by which the waters of the lake reached the sea,' said the engineer. "'Of course,' replied Pencroft, "'and we must take care not to tumble into a hole.' "'Go, Top, go!' cried Harding. The dog, excited by his master's words, ran towards the extremity of the cavern, and there redoubled his barking. They followed him, and by the light of the torches perceived the mouth of a regular well in the granite. It was by this that the water escaped, and this time it was not an oblique and practicable passage, but a perpendicular well, into which it was impossible to venture. The torches were held over the opening. Nothing could be seen. Harding took a lighted branch and threw it into the abyss. The blazing resin, whose illuminating power increased still more by the rapidity of its fall, lighted up the interior of the well, but yet nothing appeared. The flame then went out with a slight hiss, which showed that it had reached the water, that is to say, the level of the sea. The engineer, calculating the time employed in its fall, 
was able to calculate the depth of the well, which was found to be about ninety feet. The floor of the cavern must thus be situated ninety feet above the level of the sea. "'Here is our dwelling,' said Cyrus Harding. "'But it was occupied by some creature,' replied Gideon Spilett, whose curiosity was not yet satisfied. "'Well, the creature, amphibious or otherwise, has made off through this opening,' replied the engineer, "'and has left the place for us.' "'Never mind,' added the sailor. "'I should like very much to be topped just for a quarter of an hour, for he doesn't bark for nothing.' Cyrus Harding looked at his dog, and those of his companions who were near him might have heard him murmur these words. Yes, I believe that Top knows more than we do about a great many things. However, the wishes of the settlers were, for the most part, satisfied. Chance, aided by the marvellous sagacity of their leader, had done them great service. They had now at their disposal a vast cavern the size of which could not be properly calculated by the feeble light of their torches. But it would certainly be easy to divide it into rooms, by means of brick partitions, or to use it, if not as a house, at least as a spacious apartment. The water which had left it could not return. The place was free. Two difficulties remained. Firstly, the possibility of lighting this excavation in the midst of solid rock. Secondly, the necessity of rendering the means of access more easy. It was useless to think of lighting it from above, because of the enormous thickness of the granite which composed the ceiling, but perhaps the outer wall next to the sea might be pierced. Cyrus Harding, during the descent, had roughly calculated its obliqueness, and consequently the length of the passage, and was therefore led to believe that the outer wall could not be very thick. If light was thus obtained, so would a means of access, for it would be as easy to pierce a door as windows, and to establish an exterior ladder. Harding made known his ideas to his companions. "'Then, Captain, let us set to work,' replied Pencroft. "'I have my pickaxe, and I shall soon make my way through this wall. Where shall I strike?' "'Here,' replied the engineer, showing the sturdy sailor a considerable recess in the side, which would much diminish the thickness. Pencroft attacked the granite, and for half an hour, by the light of the torches, he made the splinters fly around him. Neb relieved him, then Spilett took Neb's place. This work had lasted two hours, and they began to fear that at this spot the wall would not yield to the pickaxe, when at a last blow given by Gideon Spilett the instrument passing through the rock fell outside. Hurrah! Hurrah! cried Pencroft. The wall only measured there three feet in thickness. Harding applied his eye to the aperture, which overlooked the ground from a height of eighty feet. Before him was extended the sea-coast, the islet, and beyond the open sea. Floods of light entered by this hole, inundating the splendid cavern and producing a magic effect. On its left side it did not measure more than thirty feet in height and breadth. But on the right it was enormous, and its vaulted roof rose to a height of more than eighty feet. In some places granite pillars, irregularly disposed, supported the vaulted roof, as those in the nave of a cathedral, here forming lateral piers, there elliptical arches, adorned with pointed mouldings. 
losing themselves in dark bays, amid the fantastic arches of which glimpses could be caught in the shade, provided with a profusion of projections formed like so many pendants. This cavern was a picturesque mixture of all the styles of Byzantine, Roman, or Gothic architecture ever produced by the hand of man, and yet this was only the work of nature. She alone had hollowed this fairy Alhambra in a mass of granite. The settlers were overwhelmed with admiration. Where they had only expected to find a narrow cavity, they had found a sort of marvellous palace, and Neb had taken off his hat as if he'd been transported into a temple. Cries of admiration issued from every mouth, hurrahs resounded, and the echo was repeated again and again till it died away in the dark naves. "'Ah, my friends!' exclaimed Cyrus Harding. "'When we have lighted the interior of this place, and have arranged our rooms and storehouses in the left part, we shall still have this splendid cavern which we will make our study and our museum. "'And we will call it?' asked Herbert. "'Granite House,' replied Harding, a name which his companions again saluted with a cheer. The torches were now almost consumed, and as they were obliged to return by the passage to reach the summit of the plateau, it was decided to put off the work necessary for the arrangement of their new dwelling till the next day. Before departing, Cyrus Harding leaned once more over the dark well, which descended perpendicularly to the level of the sea. He listened attentively. No noise was heard, not even that of the water, which the undulations of the surge must sometimes agitate in its depths. A flaming branch was again thrown in. The sides of the well were lighted up for an instant, but, as at the first time, nothing suspicious was seen. If some marine monster had been surprised unawares by the retreat of the water, he would by this time have regained the sea by the subterranean passage, before the new opening had been offered to him. Meanwhile, the engineer was standing motionless, his eyes fixed on the gulf, without uttering a word. The sailor approached him and touched his arm. "'Captain,' said he. "'What do you want, my friend?' asked the engineer, as if he had returned from the land of dreams. "'The torches will soon go out.' "'Forward,' replied Cyrus Harding. The little band left the cavern, and began to ascend through the dark passage. Top closed the rear, still growling every now and then. The ascent was painful enough. The settlers rested a few minutes in the upper grotto, which made a sort of landing-place halfway up the long granite staircase. Then they began to climb again. Soon fresher air was felt. The drops of water, dried by evaporation, no longer sparkled on the walls. The flaring torches began to grow dim. The one which Neb carried went out, and if they did not wish to find their way in the dark, they must hasten. This was done and a little before four o'clock, at the moment when the sailor's torch went out in its turn, Cyrus Harding and his companions passed out of the passage. End of chapter
This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne Part One, Chapter 19 The next day, the 22nd of May, the arrangement of their new dwelling was commenced. In fact, the settlers longed to exchange the insufficient shelter of the chimneys for this large and healthy retreat in the midst of solid rock, and sheltered from the water both of the sea and sky. Their former dwelling was not, however, to be entirely abandoned, for the engineer intended to make a manufactory of it for important works. Cyrus Harding's first care was to find out the position of the front of Granite House from the outside. He went to the beach, and as the pickaxe, when it escaped from the hands of the reporter, must have fallen perpendicularly to the foot of the cliff, the finding it would be sufficient to show the place where the hole had been pierced in the granite. The pickaxe was easily found, and the hole could be seen in a perpendicular line above the spot where it was stuck in the sand. Some rock pigeons were already flying in and out of the narrow opening. They evidently thought that Granite House had been discovered on purpose for them. It was the engineer's intention to divide the right portion of the cavern into several rooms, preceded by an entrance passage, and to light it by means of five windows and a door pierced in the front. Pencroft was much pleased with the five windows, but he could not understand the use of the door, since the passage offered a natural staircase through which it would always be easy to enter Granite House. "'My friend,' replied Harding, "'if it is easy for us to reach our dwelling by this passage, it will be equally easy for others besides us. I mean, on the contrary, to block up that opening, to seal it hermetically, and, if it is necessary, to completely hide the entrance by making a dam, and thus causing the water of the lake to rise.' "'And how shall we get in?' asked the sailor. "'By an outside ladder,' replied Cyrus Harding. "'A rope-ladder, which, once drawn up, will render access to our dwelling impossible.' "'But why so many precautions?' asked Pencroft. "'As yet we have seen no dangerous animals. As to our island being inhabited by natives, I don't believe it.' "'Are you quite sure of that, Pencroft?' asked the engineer, looking at the sailor. "'Of course we shall not be quite sure till we have explored it in every direction,' replied Pencroft. "'Yes,' said Harding, "'for we know only a small portion of it as yet. But at any rate, if we have no enemies in the interior, they may come from the exterior, for parts of the Pacific are very dangerous. We must be provided against every contingency.' Cyrus Harding spoke wisely and, without making any further objection, Pencroft prepared to execute his orders. The front of Granite House was then to be lighted by five windows and a door, besides a large bay window and some smaller oval ones, which would admit plenty of light to enter into the marvellous nave which was to be their chief room. This façade, situated at a height of eighty feet above the ground, was exposed to the east, and the rising sun saluted it with its first rays. It was found to be just at that part of the cliff which was between the projection at the mouth of the Mercy, and a perpendicular line traced above the heap of rocks which formed the chimneys. Thus the winds from the northeast would only strike it obliquely, 
for it was protected by the projection. Besides, until the window frames were made, the engineer meant to close the openings with thick shutters, which would prevent either wind or rain from entering, and which could be concealed in need. The first work was to make the openings. This would have taken too long with the pickaxe alone, and it is known that Harding was an ingenious man. He had still a quantity of nitroglycerin at his disposal, and he employed it usefully. By means of this explosive substance the rock was broken open at the very places chosen by the engineer. Then, with the pickaxe and spade, the windows and doors were properly shaped, the jagged edges were smoothed off, and a few days after the beginning of the work Granite House was abundantly lighted by the rising sun, whose rays penetrated into its most secret recesses. Following the plan proposed by Cyrus Harding, the space was to be divided into five compartments looking out on the sea. To the right, an entry with a door, which would meet the ladder, then a kitchen, thirty feet long, a dining-room, measuring forty feet, a sleeping-room of equal size, and lastly, a visitor's room, petitioned for by Pencroft, and which was next to the great hall. These rooms, or rather this suite of rooms, would not occupy all the depth of the cave. There would be also a corridor and a storehouse, in which their tools, provisions, and stores would be kept. All the productions of the island, the flora as well as the fauna, were to be there in the best possible state of preservation, and completely sheltered from the damp. There was no want of space, so that each object could be methodically arranged. Besides, the colonists had still at their disposal the little grotto above the great cavern, which was like the garret of the new dwelling. This plan settled, it had only to be put into execution. The miners became brickmakers again, then the bricks were brought to the foot of Granite House. Till then Harding and his companions had only entered the cavern by the long passage. This mode of communication obliged them first to climb Prospect Heights, making a detour by the river's bank, and then to descend two hundred feet through the passage, having to climb as far when they wished to return to the plateau. This was a great loss of time, and was also very fatiguing. Cyrus Harding, therefore, resolved to proceed without any further delay to the fabrication of a strong rope-ladder, which, once raised, would render Granite House completely inaccessible. This ladder was manufactured with extreme care, and its uprights, formed of the twisted fibers of a species of cane, had the strength of a thick cable. As to the rounds, they were made of a sort of red cedar, with light strong branches, and this apparatus was wrought by the masterly hand of Pencroft. Other ropes were made with vegetable fibers, and a sort of crane with a tackle was fixed at the door. In this way bricks could easily be raised into Granite House. The transport of the materials being thus simplified, the arrangement of the interior could begin immediately. There was no want of lime, and some thousands of bricks were there ready to be used. The framework of the partitions was soon raised, very roughly at first, and in a short time the cave was divided into rooms and storehouses, according to the plan agreed upon. These different works progressed rapidly under the direction of the engineer, who himself handled the hammer and the trowel. No labor came amiss to Cyrus Harding, 
who thus set an example to his intelligent and zealous companions. They worked with confidence, even gaily, Pencroft always having some joke to crack, sometimes carpenter, sometimes rope-maker, sometimes mason, while he communicated his good humour to all the members of their little world. His faith in the engineer was complete. Nothing could disturb it. He believed him capable of undertaking anything and succeeding in everything. The question of boots and clothes, assuredly a serious question, that of light during the winter months, utilizing the fertile parts of the island, transforming the wild flora into cultivated flora. It all appeared easy to him. Cyrus Harding helping, everything would be done in time. He dreamed of canals facilitating the transport of the riches of the ground, workings of quarries and mines, machines for every industrial manufacture, railroads, yes, railroads, of which a network would certainly one day cover Lincoln Island. The engineer let Pencroft talk. He did not put down the aspirations of this brave heart. He knew how communicable confidence is. He even smiled to hear him speak, and said nothing of the uneasiness for the future which he felt. In fact, in that part of the Pacific, out of the course of vessels, it was to be feared that no help would ever come to them. It was on themselves, on themselves alone, that the settlers must depend, for the distance of Lincoln Island from all other land was such that to hazard themselves in a boat of a necessarily inferior construction would be a serious and perilous thing. But, as the sailor said, they quite took the wind out of the sails of the Robinsons, for whom everything was done by a miracle. In fact, they were energetic. An energetic man will succeed where an indolent one would vegetate and inevitably perish. Herbert distinguished himself in these works. He was intelligent and active. Understanding quickly, he performed well, and Cyrus Harding became more and more attached to the boy. Herbert had a lively and reverent love for the engineer. Pencroft saw the close sympathy which existed between the two, but he was not in the least jealous. Neb was Neb. He was what he would be always—courage, zeal, devotion, self-denial personified. He had the same faith in his master that Pencroft had, but he showed it less vehemently. When the sailor was enthusiastic, Neb always looked as if he would say, "'Nothing could be more natural.' Pencroft and he were great friends. As to Gideon Spilett, he took part in the common work, and was not less skilful in it than his companions, which always rather astonished the sailor. A journalist, clever, not only in understanding, but in performing everything. The ladder was finally fixed on the 28th of May. There was not less than a hundred rounds in this perpendicular height of eighty feet. Harding had been able, fortunately, to divide it in two parts profiting by an overhanging of the cliff which made a projection forty feet above the ground. This projection, carefully leveled by the pickaxe, made a sort of platform, to which they fixed the first ladder, of which the oscillation was thus diminished one-half, and a rope permitted it to be raised to the level of Granite House. As to the second ladder, it was secured both at its lower part, which rested on the projection, and at its upper end, which was fastened to the door. In short, 
the ascent had been made much easier. Besides, Cyrus Harding hoped later to establish an hydraulic apparatus, which would avoid all fatigue and loss of time for the inhabitants of Granite House. The settlers soon became habituated to the use of this ladder. They were light and active, and Pencroft, as a sailor, accustomed to run up the masts and shrouds, was able to give them lessons. But it was also necessary to give them to top. The poor dog, with his four paws, was not formed for this sort of exercise. But Pencroft was such a zealous master that Top ended by properly performing his ascents, and soon mounted the ladder as readily as his brethren in the circus. It need not be said that the sailor was proud of his pupil. However, more than once Pencroft hoisted him on his back, which Top never complained of. It must be mentioned here that during these works, which were actively conducted, for the bad season was approaching, the elementary question was not neglected. Every day the reporter and Herbert, who had been voted purveyors to the colony, devoted some hours to the chase. As yet they only hunted in Jacamar Wood, on the left of the river, because, for want of a bridge or boat, the Mercy had not yet been crossed. All the immense woods, to which the name of the forests of the far west had been given, were not explored. They reserved this important excursion for the first fine days of the next spring. But Jacamar Wood was full of game, kangaroos and boars abounded, and the hunters' iron-tipped spears and bows and arrows did wonders. Besides, Herbert discovered toward the southwest point of the lagoon a natural warren, a slightly damp meadow, covered with willows and aromatic herbs which scented the air, such as thyme, basil, savory, all the sweet-scented species of the labiated plants, which the rabbits appeared to be particularly fond of. On the reporter observing that since the table was spread for the rabbits, it was strange that the rabbits themselves should be wanting, the two sportsmen carefully explored the warren. At any rate, it produced an abundance of useful plants, and a naturalist would have had a good opportunity of studying many specimens of the vegetable kingdom. Herbert gathered several shoots of the basil, rosemary, balm, betony, etc., which possessed different medicinal properties, some pectoral, astringent, febrifuge, others antispasmodic or anti-rheumatic. When, afterwards, Pencroft asked the use of this collection of herbs, for medicine, replied the lad, to treat us when we are ill. Why should we be ill, since there are no doctors in the island? asked Pencroft, quite seriously. There was no reply to be made to that, but the lad went on with his collection all the same, and it was well received at Granite House. Besides these medicinal herbs, he added a plant known in North America as Oswego tea, which made an excellent beverage. At last, by searching thoroughly, the hunters arrived at the real site of the warren. There the ground was perforated like a sieve. "'Here are the burrows!' cried Herbert. "'Yes,' replied the reporter. "'So I see.' "'But are they inhabited?' "'That is the question.' This was soon answered. Almost immediately hundreds of little animals, similar to rabbits, fled in every direction, with such rapidity that even Top could not overtake them. Hunters and dog ran in vain. These rodents escaped them easily. 
but the reporter resolved not to leave the place until he had captured at least half a dozen of the quadrupeds. He wished to stock their larder first, and domesticate those which they might take later. It would not have been difficult to do this, with a few snares stretched at the openings of the burrows. But at this moment they had neither snares nor anything to make them of. They must therefore be satisfied with visiting each hole and rummaging in it with a stick, hoping by dint of patience to do what could not be done in any other way. At last, after half an hour, four rodents were taken in their holes. They were similar to their European brethren, and are commonly known by the name of American rabbits. This produce of the chase was brought back to Granite House, and figured at the evening repast. The tenants of the warren were not at all to be despised, for they were delicious. It was a valuable resource of the colony, and it appeared to be inexhaustible. On the 31st of May the partitions were finished. The rooms had now only to be furnished, and this would be work for the long winter days. A chimney was established in the first room, which served as the kitchen. The pipe destined to conduct the smoke outside gave some trouble to these amateur bricklayers. It appeared simplest to Harding to make it of brick clay, as creating an outlet for it to the upper plateau was not to be thought of. A hole was pierced in the granite above the window of the kitchen, and the pipe met it like that of an iron stove. Perhaps the winds which blew directly against the façade would make the chimney smoke, but these winds were rare, and besides, Master Neb, the cook, was not so very particular about that. When these interior arrangements were finished, the engineer occupied himself in blocking up the outlet by the lake, so as to prevent any access by that way. Masses of rock were rolled to the entrance and strongly cemented together. Cyrus Harding did not yet realize his plan of drowning this opening under the waters of the lake by restoring them to their former level by means of a dam. He contented himself with hiding the obstruction with grass and shrubs, which were planted in the interstices of the rocks, and which next spring would sprout thickly. However, he used the waterfall so as to lead a small stream of fresh water to the new dwelling. A little trench, made below their level, produced this result, and this derivation from a pure and inexhaustible source yielded twenty-five or thirty gallons a day. There would never be any want of water at Granite House. At last all was finished, and it was time, for the bad season was near. Thick shutters closed the windows of the façade, until the engineer had time to make glass. Gideon Spillett had very artistically arranged on the rocky projections, around the windows, plants of different kinds, as well as long streaming grass, so that the openings were picturesquely framed in green, which had a pleasing effect. The inhabitants of this solid, healthy, and secure dwelling could not but be charmed with their work. The view from the windows extended over a boundless horizon, which was closed by the two mandible capes on the north and Claw Cape on the south. All Union Bay was spread before them. Yes, our brave settlers had reason to be satisfied, and Pencroft was lavish in his praise of what he humorously called his apartments on the fifth floor above the ground. End of chapter
This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne Part One, Chapter Twenty The winter season set in with the month of June, which corresponds with the month of December in the northern hemisphere. It began with showers and squalls, which succeeded each other without intermission. The tenants of Granite House could appreciate the advantages of a dwelling which sheltered them from the inclement weather. The chimneys would have been quite insufficient to protect them against the rigour of winter, and it was to be feared that the high tides would make another eruption. Cyrus Harding had taken precautions against this contingency, so as to preserve as much as possible the forge and furnace which were established there. During the whole of the month of June, the time was employed in different occupations, which excluded neither hunting nor fishing, the larder being therefore abundantly supplied. Pencrop, so soon as he had leisure, proposed to set some traps, from which he expected great results. He soon made some snares with creepers, by the aid of which the warren henceforth every day furnished its quota of rodents. Neb employed nearly all his time in salting or smoking meat, which ensured their always having plenty of provisions. The question of clothes was now seriously discussed, the settlers having no other garments than those they wore when the balloon threw them on the island. These clothes were warm and good. They had taken great care of them as well as of their linen, and they were perfectly whole, but they would soon need to be replaced. Moreover, if the winter was severe, the settlers would suffer greatly from cold. On this subject the ingenuity of Harding was at fault. They must provide for their most pressing wants, settle their dwelling, and lay in a store of food. Thus the cold might come upon them before the question of clothes had been settled. They must therefore make up their minds to pass this first winter without additional clothing. When the fine season came round again, they would regularly hunt those musmons which had been seen on the expedition to Mount Franklin, and the wool once collected, the engineer would know how to make it into strong, warm stuff. How? He would consider. "'Well, we are free to roast ourselves at Granite House,' said Pencroft. "'There are heaps of fuel, and no reason for sparing it.' "'Besides,' added Gideon Spilett, "'Lincoln Island is not situated under a very high latitude, and probably the winters here are not severe. Did you not say, Cyrus?' that this thirty-fifth parallel corresponded to that of Spain in the other hemisphere? Doubtless, replied the engineer, but some winters in Spain are very cold, no want of snow and ice, and perhaps Lincoln Island is just as rigorously tried. However, it is an island, and as such I hope that the temperature will be more moderate. Why, Captain? asked Herbert. Because the sea, my boy, may be considered as an immense reservoir, in which is stored the heat of the summer. When winter comes, it restores this heat, which ensures for the regions near the ocean a medium temperature, less high in summer, but less low in winter. We shall prove that, replied Pencroft, but I don't want to bother myself about whether it will be cold or not. One thing is certain, that is, that the days are already short 
and then evenings long. Suppose we talk about the question of light. Nothing is easier, replied Harding. To talk about, asked the sailor, to settle. And when shall we begin? Tomorrow, by having a seal hunt. To make candles? Yes. Such was the engineer's project, and it was quite feasible, since he had lime and sulfuric acid, while the amphibians of the islet would furnish the fat necessary for the manufacture. They were now at the 4th of June. It was Whit Sunday, and they agreed to observe this feast. All work was suspended, and prayers were offered to heaven. But these prayers were now thanksgivings. The settlers in Lincoln Island were no longer the miserable castaways thrown on the islet. They asked for nothing more. They gave thanks. The next day, the 5th of June, in rather uncertain weather, they set out for the islet. They had to profit by the low tide to cross the channel, and it was agreed that they would construct for this purpose, as well as they could, a boat which should render communication so much easier and would also permit them to ascend the Mercy, at the time of their grand exploration of the southwest of the island, which was put off till the first fine days. The seals were numerous, and the hunters, armed with their iron-tipped spears, easily killed half a dozen. Neb and Pencroft skinned them, and only brought back to Granite House their fat and skin, the skin being intended for the manufacture of boots. The result of the hunt was this, nearly three hundred pounds of fat, all to be employed in the fabrication of candles. The operation was extremely simple, and if it did not yield absolutely perfect results, they were at least very useful. Cyrus Harding would only have at his disposal sulfuric acid, but by heating this acid with the neutral fatty bodies he could separate the glycerin. Then from this new combination he easily separated the olein, the margarine, and the stearin by employing boiling water. But to simplify the operation, he preferred to saponify the fat by means of lime. By this he obtained a calcareous soap, easy to decompose by sulfuric acid, which precipitated the lime into the state of sulfate and liberated the fatty acids. From these three acids, oleic, margaric, and stearic, the first, being liquid, was driven out by a sufficient pressure. As to the two others, they formed the very substance of which the candles were to be moulded. This operation did not last more than four and twenty hours. The wicks, after several trials, were made of vegetable fibres, and dipped in the liquefied substance, they formed regular stearic candles, moulded by the hand, which only wanted whiteness and polish. They would not doubtless have the advantage of the wicks which are impregnated with boracic acid, and which vitrify as they burn and are entirely consumed, but Cyrus Harding, having manufactured a beautiful pair of snuffers, these candles would be greatly appreciated during the long evenings in Granite House. During this month there was no want of work in the interior of their new dwelling. The joiners had plenty to do. They improved their tools, which were very rough, and added others also. Scissors were made among other things, and the settlers were at last able to cut their hair, and also to shave, or at least trim their beards. Herbert had none, Neb but little, 
but their companions were bristling in a way which justified the making of the said scissors. The manufacture of a handsaw cost infinite trouble, but at last an instrument was obtained which, when vigorously handled, could divide the ligneous fibres of the wood. They then made tables, seats, cupboards, to furnish the principal rooms, and bedsteads, of which all the bedding consisted of grass mattresses. The kitchen, with its shelves, on which rested the cooking utensils, its brick stove, looked very well, and Neb worked away there as earnestly as if he was in a chemist's laboratory. But the joiners had soon to be replaced by carpenters. In fact, the waterfall created by the explosion rendered the construction of two bridges necessary, one on Prospect Heights, the other on the shore. Now the plateau and the shore were transversely divided by a watercourse, which had to be crossed to reach the northern part of the island. To avoid it, the colonists had been obliged to make a considerable detour by climbing up to the source of the Red Creek. The simplest thing was to establish on the plateau, and on the shore, two bridges from twenty to five and twenty feet in length. All the carpenter's work that was needed was to clear some trees of their branches. This was a business of some days. Directly the bridges were established, Neb and Pencroft profited by them to go to the oyster-bed, which had been discovered near the downs. They dragged with them a sort of rough cart, which replaced the former inconvenient hurdle, and brought back some thousands of oysters, which soon increased among the rocks and formed a bed at the mouth of the Mercy. These mollusks were of excellent quality, and the colonists consumed some daily. It has been seen that Lincoln Island, although its inhabitants had as yet only explored a small portion of it, already contributed to almost all their wants. It was probable that if they hunted into its most secret recesses, in all the wooded part between the Mercy and Reptile Point, they would find new treasures. The settlers in Lincoln Island had still one privation. There was no want of meat, nor of vegetable products. Those ligneous roots which they had found, when subjected to fermentation, gave them an acid drink, which was preferable to cold water. They also made sugar, without canes or beet-roots, by collecting the liquor which distills from the Acer saccharinum, a sort of maple-tree, which flourishes in all the temperate zones, and of which the island possessed a great number. They made a very agreeable tea by employing the herbs brought from the warren. Lastly, they had an abundance of salt, the only mineral which is used in food, but bread was wanting. Perhaps in time the settlers could replace this want by some equivalent. It was possible that they might find the sago, or the breadfruit tree, among the forest of the south, but they had not as yet met with these precious trees. However, Providence came directly to their aid, in an infinitesimal proportion, it is true, but Cyrus Harding, with all his intelligence, all his ingenuity, would never have been able to produce that which, by the greatest chance, Herbert one day found in the lining of his waistcoat, which he was occupied in setting to rights. On this day, as it was raining in torrents, the settlers were assembled in the great hall in Granite House, when the lad cried out all at once, "'Look here, Captain! A grain of corn!' And he showed his companions a grain, 
a single grain, which from a hole in his pocket had got into the lining of his waistcoat. The presence of this grain was explained by the fact that Herbert, when at Richmond, used to feed some pigeons, of which Pencroft had made him a present. "'A grain of corn?' said the engineer quickly. "'Yes, Captain, but one, only one.' "'Well, my boy,' said Pencroft, laughing, "'we're getting on capitally, upon my word. What shall we make with one grain of corn?' "'We will make bread of it,' replied Cyrus Harding. "'Bread, cakes, tarts,' replied the sailor. "'Come, the bread that this grain of corn will make won't choke us very soon.' Herbert, not attaching much importance to his discovery, was going to throw away the grain in question. But Harding took it, examined it, found that it was in good condition, and looking the sailor full in the face, Pencroft, he asked quietly, Do you know how many ears one grain of corn can produce? One, I suppose, replied the sailor, surprised at the question. Ten, Pencroft, and do you know how many grains one ear bears? No, upon my word. About eighty said Cyrus Harding. Then, if we plant this grain, at the first crop we shall reap eight hundred grains, which at the second will produce six hundred and forty thousand, at the third five hundred and twelve millions, at the fourth more than four hundred thousands of millions. There is the proportion. Harding's companions listened without answering. These numbers astonished them. They were exact, however. Yes, my friends, continued the engineer, such are the arithmetical progressions of prolific nature, and yet what is this multiplication of the grain of corn, of which the ear only bears eight hundred grains, compared to the poppy plant, which bears thirty-two thousand seeds, to the tobacco plant, which produces three hundred and sixty thousand? In a few years, without the numerous causes of destruction which arrest their fecundity, these plants would overrun the earth. But the engineer had not finished his lecture. And now, Pencroft, he continued, do you know how many bushels four hundred thousand millions of grains would make? <laughs> no, replied the sailor, but what I do know is that I am nothing better than a fool. Well they would make more than three millions at a hundred and thirty thousand a bushel, Pencroft. Three millions! cried Pencroft. Three millions. In four years? In four years, replied Cyrus Harding. And even in two years, if, as I hope, in this latitude we can obtain two crops a year. At that, according to his usual custom, Pencroft could not reply otherwise than by a tremendous hurrah. So, Herbert, added the engineer, you have made a discovery of great importance to us. Everything, my friends, everything can serve us in the condition in which we are. Do not forget that, I beg of you. No, Captain, no, we shan't forget it, replied Pencroft. And if ever I find one of those tobacco seeds, which multiply by three hundred and sixty thousand, I assure you I won't throw it away. And now, what must we do? We must plant this grain, replied Herbert. Yes, added Gideon Spilett, and with every possible care. 
for it bears in itself our future harvests. "'Provided it grows,' cried the sailor. "'It will grow,' replied Cyrus Harding. This was the twentieth of June. The time was then propitious for sowing this single precious grain of corn. It was first proposed to plant it in a pot, but upon reflection it was decided to leave it to nature and confide it to the earth. This was done that very day, and it is needless to add that every precaution was taken that the experiment might succeed. The weather having cleared, the settlers climbed the height above Granite House. There on the plateau they chose a spot, well sheltered from the wind, and exposed to all the heat of the midday sun. The place was cleared, carefully weeded, and searched for insects and worms. Then a bed of good earth, improved with a little lime, was made. It was surrounded by a railing, and the grain was buried in the damp earth. Did it not seem as if the settlers were laying the first stone of some edifice? It recalled to Pencroft the day on which he lighted his only match, and all the anxiety of the operation. But this time the thing was more serious. In fact, the castaways would have been always able to procure fire in some mode or other, but no human power could supply another grain of corn if, unfortunately, this should be lost. End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne, Part One, Chapter Twenty One. From this time Pencroft did not let a single day pass without going to visit what he gravely called his cornfield, and woe to the insects which dared to venture there, no mercy was shown them. Towards the end of the month of June, after incessant rain, the weather became decidedly colder, and on the twenty-ninth the Fahrenheit thermometer would certainly have announced only twenty degrees above zero, that is considerably below the freezing point. The next day, the 30th of June, the day which corresponds to the 31st of December in the northern year, was a Friday. Neb remarked that the year finished on a bad day, but Pencroft replied that naturally the next would begin on a good one, which was better. At any rate, it commenced by very severe cold. Ice accumulated at the mouth of the Mercy, and it was not long before the whole expanse of the lake was frozen. The settlers had frequently been obliged to renew their store of wood. Pencroft also had wisely not waited till the river was frozen, but had brought enormous rafts of wood to their destination. The current was an indefatigable moving power, and it was employed in conveying the floating wood to the moment when the frost enchained it. To the fuel which was so abundantly supplied by the forest, they added several cartloads of coal which had to be brought from the foot of the spurs of Mount Franklin. The powerful heat of the coal was greatly appreciated in the low temperature, which on the 4th of July fell to 8 degrees of Fahrenheit, that is, 13 degrees below zero. A second fireplace had been established in the dining-room, 
where they all worked together at their different avocations. During this period of cold, Cyrus Harding had great cause to congratulate himself on having brought to Granite House the little stream of water from Lake Grant. Taken below the frozen surface and conducted through the passage, it preserved its fluidity and arrived at an interior reservoir which had been hollowed out at the back part of the storeroom, while the overflow ran through the well to the sea. About this time, the weather being extremely dry, the colonists, clothed as warmly as possible, resolved to devote a day to the exploration of that part of the island between the Mercy and Claw Cape. It was a wide extent of marshy land, and they would probably find good sport, for water birds ought to swarm there. They reckoned that it would be about eight or nine miles to go there, and as much to return, so that the whole of the day would be occupied. As an unknown part of the island was about to be explored, the whole colony took part in the expedition. Accordingly, on the 5th of July, at six o'clock in the morning, when day had scarcely broken, Cyrus Harding, Gideon Spilett, Herbert, Neb, and Pencroft, armed with spears, snares, bows, and arrows, and provided with provisions, left Granite House preceded by Top, who bounded before them. Their shortest way was to cross the Mercy on the ice, which then covered it. But, as the engineer justly observed, that could not take the place of a regular bridge. So the construction of a regular bridge was noted in the list of future works. It was the first time that the settlers had set foot on the right bank of the Mercy, and ventured into the midst of those gigantic and superb coniferae now sprinkled over with snow. But they had not gone half a mile when from a thicket a whole family of quadrupeds, who had made a home there, disturbed by top, rushed forth into the open country. "'Ah! I should say those are foxes!' cried Herbert, when he saw the troop rapidly decamping. They were foxes, but of a very large size, who uttered a sort of barking, at which Top seemed to be very much astonished, for he stopped short in the chase, and gave the swift animals time to disappear. The dog had reason to be surprised, as he did not know natural history. But by their barking, these foxes, with reddish-gray hair, black tails terminating in a white tuft, had betrayed their origin. So Herbert was able, without hesitating, to give them their real name of Arctic foxes. They are frequently met with in Chile, in the Falkland Islands, and in all parts of America traversed by the thirtieth and fortieth parallels. Herbert much regretted that Top had not been able to catch one of these carnivora. "'Are they good to eat?' asked Pencroft, who only regarded the representatives of the fauna in the island from one special point of view. "'No,' replied Herbert, "'but zoologists have not yet found out if the eye of these foxes is diurnal or nocturnal, or whether it is correct to class them in the genus Dog, properly so called.' Harding could not help smiling on hearing the lad's reflection, which showed a thoughtful mind. As to the sailor, from the moment when he found that the foxes were not classed in the genus Eatable, they were nothing to him. However, when a poultry-yard was established at Granite House, he observed that it would be best to take some precautions against a probable visit from these four-legged plunderers, and no one disputed this. After having turned the point, 
the settlers saw a long beach washed by the open sea. It was then eight o'clock in the morning. The sky was very clear, as it often is after prolonged cold, but warmed by their walk, neither Harding nor his companions felt the sharpness of the atmosphere too severely. Besides, there was no wind, which made it much more bearable. A brilliant sun, but without any calorific action, was just issuing from the ocean. The sea was as tranquil and blue as that of a Mediterranean gulf, when the sky is clear. Claw Cape, bent in the form of a yatagan, tapered away nearly four miles to the southeast. To the left, the edge of the marsh was abruptly ended by a little point. Certainly in this part of Union Bay, which nothing sheltered from the open sea, not even a sandbank, ships beaten by the east winds would have found no shelter. They perceived by the tranquillity of the sea, in which no shallows troubled the waters, by its uniform color, which was stained by no yellow shades, by the absence of even a reef, that the coast was steep, and that the ocean there covered a deep abyss. Behind in the west, at a distance of four miles, rose the first trees of the forest of the far west. They might have believed themselves to be on the desolate coast of some island in the Antarctic regions which the ice had invaded. The colonists halted at this place for breakfast. A fire of brushwood and dried seaweed was lighted, and Ned prepared the breakfast of cold meat, to which he added some cups of Oswego tea. While eating they looked around them. This part of Lincoln Island was very sterile, and contrasted with all the western part. The reporter was thus led to observe that if chance had thrown them at first on the shore, they would have had but a deplorable idea of their future domain. "'I believe that we should not have been able to reach it,' replied the engineer, "'for the sea is deep, and there is not a rock on which we could have taken refuge. Before Granite House, at least, there were sandbanks, an islet, which multiplied our chances of safety.' Here, nothing but the depths. It is singular enough, remarked Spilett, that this comparatively small island should present such varied ground. This diversity of aspect logically only belongs to continents of a certain extent. One would really say that the western part of Lincoln Island, so rich and so fertile, is washed by the warm waters of the Gulf of Mexico and that its shores to the north and the southeast extend over a sort of arctic sea. "'You are right, my dear Spilett,' replied Cyrus Harding. "'I have also observed this. I think the form, and also the nature of this island, strange. It is a summary of all the aspects which a continent presents, and I should not be surprised if it was a continent formerly.' "'What? A continent in the middle of the Pacific?' cried Pencroft. "'Why not?' replied Cyrus Harding. "'Why should not Australia, New Ireland, Australasia, united to the archipelagos of the Pacific, have once formed a sixth part of the world, as important as Europe or Asia, as Africa or the two Americas? To my mind it is quite possible that all these islands, emerging from this vast ocean, are but the summits of a continent now submerged, but which was above the waters at a prehistoric period. "'As the Atlantis was formerly,' replied Herbert. "'Yes, my boy, if, however, it existed. 
"'And would Lincoln Island have been a part of that continent?' asked Pencroft. "'It is probable,' replied Cyrus Harding, "'and that would sufficiently explain the variety of productions which are seen on its surface.' "'And the great number of animals which still inhabit it,' added Herbert. "'Yes, my boy,' replied the engineer, "'and you furnish me with an argument to support my theory. "'It is certain, after what we have seen, "'that animals are numerous in this island, "'and, what is more strange, "'that the species are extremely varied. "'There is a reason for that, "'and to me it is that Lincoln Island "'may have formerly been a part of some vast continent which is gradually sunk below the pacific then some fine day said pencroft who did not appear to be entirely convinced the rest of this ancient continent may disappear in its turn and there will be nothing between america and asia yes replied harding there will be new continents which millions and millions of animaculae are building at this moment and what are these masons asked pencroft coral insects replied cyrus harding by constant work they made the island of clermont tonnerre and numerous other coral islands in the pacific ocean forty-seven millions of these insects are needed to weigh a grain and yet with the sea salt they absorb the solid elements of water which they assimilate these animaculae produce limestone and this limestone forms enormous submarine erections of which the hardness and solidity equal granite formerly at the first periods of creation nature employing fire heaved up the land but now she entrusts to these microscopic creatures the task of replacing this agent of which the dynamic power in the interior of the globe has evidently diminished which is proved by the number of volcanoes on the surface of the earth now actually extinct and i believe that centuries succeeding to centuries and insects to insects this specific may one day be changed into a vast continent which new generations will inhabit and civilize in their turn that will take a long time said pencroft nature has time for it replied the engineer but what would be the use of new continents asked herbert it appears to me that the present extent of habitable countries is sufficient for humanity yet nature does nothing uselessly nothing uselessly certainly replied the engineer but this is how the necessity of new continents for the future and exactly on the tropical zone occupied by the coral islands may be explained at least to me this explanation appears plausible we are listening captain said herbert this is my idea philosophers generally admit that some day our globe will end or rather that animal and vegetable life will no longer be possible because of the intense cold to which it will be subjected what they are not agreed upon is the cause of this cold some think it will arise from the falling of the temperature which the sun will experience after millions of years others from the gradual extinction of the fires in the interior of our globe which have a greater influence on it than is generally supposed i hold to this last hypothesis grounding it on the fact that the moon is really a cold star which is no longer habitable 
although the sun continues to throw on its surface the same amount of heat. If, then, the moon has become cold, it is because the interior fires to which, as do all the stars of the stellar world, it owes its origin, are completely extinct. Lastly, whatever may be the cause, our globe will become cold some day, but this cold will only operate gradually. What will happen then? The temperate zones, at a more or less distant period, will not be more habitable than the polar regions now are. Then the population of men, as well as the animals, will flow towards the latitudes which are more directly under the solar influence. An immense emigration will take place. Europe, Central Asia, North America, will gradually be abandoned, as well as Australasia and the lower parts of South America. The vegetation will follow the human emigration. The flora will retreat towards the equator at the same time as the fauna. The central parts of South America and Africa will be the continents chiefly inhabited. The Laplanders and the Samoides will find the climate of the polar regions on the shores of the Mediterranean. Who can say that at this period the equatorial regions will not be too small to contain and nourish terrestrial humanity? Now may not provident nature, so as to give refuge to all the vegetable and animal emigration, be at present laying the foundation of a new continent under the equator, and may she not have entrusted these insects with the construction of it? I have often thought of all these things, my friends, and I seriously believe that the aspect of our globe will some day be completely changed, that by the raising of new continents the sea will cover the old, and that, in future ages, a Columbus will go to discover the islands of Chimborazo, of the Himalayas, or of Mount Blanc, remains of a submerged America, Asia, and Europe. Then these new continents will become in their turn uninhabitable. Heat will die away, as does the heat from a body when the soul has left it, and life will disappear from the globe, if not forever, at least for a period. Perhaps then our spheroid will rest, will be left to death, to revive some day under superior conditions. But all that, my friends, is the secret of the author of all things, and beginning by the work of the insects, I have perhaps let myself be carried too far in investigating the secrets of the future. My dear Cyrus, replied Spilett, these theories are prophecies to me, and they will be accomplished some day. That is the secret of God, said the engineer. All that is well and good, then said Pencroft, who had listened with all his might. But will you tell me, Captain, if Lincoln Island has been made by your insects? No, replied Harding. It is of a purely volcanic origin. Then it will disappear some day? That is probable. I hope we won't be here, then. No, don't be uneasy, Pencroft. We shall not be here then, as we have no wish to die here and hope to get away some time. In the meantime, replied Gideon Spilett, let us establish ourselves here as if forever. There is no use in doing things by halves. This ended the conversation. Breakfast was finished, the exploration was continued, 
and the settlers arrived at the border of the marshy region. It was a marsh of which the extent, to the rounded coast which terminated the island at the southeast, was about twenty square miles. The soil was formed of clayey flint earth, mingled with vegetable matter, such as the remains of rushes, reeds, grass, etc. Here and there beds of grass, thick as a carpet, covered it. In many places icy pools sparkled in the sun. Neither rain nor any river, increased by a sudden swelling, could supply these ponds. They therefore naturally concluded that the marsh was fed by the infiltrations of the soil, and it was really so. It was also to be feared that during the heat miasmas would arise, which might produce fevers. Above the aquatic plants, on the surface of the stagnant water, fluttered numbers of birds. Wild duck, teal, snipe lived there in flocks, and those fearless birds allowed themselves to be easily approached. One shot from a gun would certainly have brought down some dozen of the birds, they were so close together. The explorers were, however, obliged to content themselves with bows and arrows. The result was less, but the silent arrow had the advantage of not frightening the birds, while the noise of firearms would have dispersed them to all parts of the marsh. The hunters were satisfied for this time with a dozen ducks, which had white bodies with a band of cinnamon, a green head, wings black, white, and red, and flattened beak. Herbert called them Tadorns. Top helped in the capture of these birds, whose name was given to this marshy part of the island. The settlers had here an abundant reserve of aquatic game. At some future time they meant to explore it more carefully, and it was probable that some of the birds there might be domesticated, or at least brought to the shores of the lake, so that they would be more within their reach. About five o'clock in the evening Cyrus Harding and his companions retraced their steps to their dwelling by traversing Tadorn's fens, and crossed the Mercy on the ice bridge. At eight in the evening they all entered Granite House. End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne Part 1, Chapter 22 This intense cold lasted until the 15th of August, without, however, passing the degree of Fahrenheit already mentioned. When the atmosphere was calm, the low temperature was easily borne. But when the wind blew, the poor settlers, insufficiently clothed, felt it severely. Pencroft regretted that Lincoln Island was not the home of a few families of bears, rather than of so many foxes and seals. "'Bears,' said he, "'are generally very well dressed, and I ask no more than to borrow for the winter the warm cloaks which they have on their backs.' <laughs> "'But,' replied Neb, laughing, "'perhaps the bears would not consent to give you their cloaks, Pencroft.' These beasts are not St. Martin's. We would make them do it, Neb. We would make them, replied Pencroft, in quite an authoritative tone. But these formidable carnivora did not exist in the island, or at any rate they had not as yet shown themselves. In the meanwhile, 
Herbert, Pencroft, and the reporter occupied themselves with making traps on Prospect Heights and at the border of the forest. According to the sailor, any animal, whatever it was, would be a lawful prize, and the rodents or carnivora which might get into the new snares would be well received at Granite House. The traps were, besides, extremely simple, being pits dug in the ground, a platform of branches and grass above, which concealed the opening, and at the bottom some bait, the scent of which would attract animals. It must be mentioned also that they had not been dug at random, but at certain places where numerous footprints showed that quadrupeds frequented the ground. They were visited every day, and at three different times during the first days specimens of those Antarctic foxes which they had already seen on the right bank of the Mercy were found in them. "'Why, there are nothing but foxes in this country!' cried Pencroft, when for the third time he drew one of the animals out of the pit. Looking at it in great disgust, he added, "'Beasts which are good for nothing!' "'Yes,' said Gideon Spilett, "'they are good for something.' "'And what is that?' "'To make bait to attract other creatures.' The reporter was right, and the traps were henceforward baited with the fox's carcasses. The sailor had also made snares from the long, tough fibres of a certain plant, and they were even more successful than the traps. Rarely a day passed without some rabbits from the warren being caught. It was always rabbit, but Neb knew how to vary his sauces, and the settlers did not think of complaining. However, once or twice in the second week of August, the traps supplied the hunters with other animals more useful than foxes, namely, several of those small wild boars which had already been seen to the north of the lake. Pencroft had no need to ask if these beasts were eatable. He could see that by their resemblance to the pig of America and Europe. "'But these are not pigs,' said Herbert to him. "'I warn you of that, Pencroft.' "'My boy!' replied the sailor, bending over the trap and drawing out one of those representatives of the family of Seuss by the little appendage which served it as a tail. Let me believe that these are pigs. Why? Because that pleases me. Are you very fond of pig, then, Pencroft? I am very fond of pig, replied the sailor, particularly of its feet, and if it had eight instead of four I should like it twice as much. As to the animals in question, they were peccaries belonging to one of the four species which are included in the family, and they were also of the species of Tajaku, recognizable by their deep color and the absence of those long teeth with which the mouths of their congeners are armed. These peccaries generally live in herds, and it was probable that they abounded in the woody parts of the island. At any rate, they were eatable from head to foot, and Pencroft did not ask more from them. Towards the 15th of August, the state of the atmosphere was suddenly moderated by the wind shifting to the northwest. The temperature rose seven degrees, and the accumulated vapor in the air was not long in resolving into snow. All the island was covered with a sheet of white, and showed itself to its inhabitants under a new aspect. The snow fell abundantly for several days, and it soon reached a thickness of two feet. The wind also blew with great violence, and at the height of Granite House the sea could be heard thundering against the reefs. In some places the wind, eddying around the corners, formed the snow into tall whirling columns, resembling those water-spouts which turn round on their base, 
and which vessels attack with a shot from a gun. However, the storm, coming from the northwest, blew across the island, and the position of Granite House preserved it from a direct attack. But in the midst of this snowstorm, as terrible as if it had been produced in some polar country, neither Cyrus Harding nor his companions could, notwithstanding their wish for it, venture forth, and they remained shut up for five days, from the 20th to the 25th of August. They could hear the tempest raging in the Jacamar woods, which would surely suffer from it. Many of the trees would no doubt be torn up by the roots, but Pencroft consoled himself by thinking that he would not have the trouble of cutting them down. "'The wind is turning woodman. Let it alone,' he repeated. Besides, there was no way of stopping it, if they had wished to do so. How grateful the inhabitants of Granite House then were to heaven for having prepared for them this solid and immovable retreat! Cyrus Harding had also his legitimate share of thanks, but, after all, it was nature who had hollowed out this vast cavern, and he had only discovered it. They all were in safety, and the tempest could not reach them. If they had constructed a house of bricks and wood on Prospect Heights, it certainly would not have resisted the fury of this storm. As to the chimneys, it must have been absolutely uninhabitable, for the sea, passing over the islet, would beat furiously against it. But here, in Granite House, in the middle of a solid mass, over which neither the sea nor air had any influence, there was nothing to fear. During these days of seclusion the sailors did not remain inactive. There was no want of wood, cut up into planks, in the storeroom, and little by little they completed their furnishing, constructing the most solid of tables and chairs, for material was not spared. Neb and Pencroft were very proud of this rather heavy furniture, which they would not have changed on any account. Then the carpenters became basket-makers, and they did not succeed badly in this new manufacture. At the point of the lake which projected to the north they had discovered an osier bed in which grew a large number of purple osiers. Before the rainy season Pencroft and Herbert had cut down these useful shrubs, and their branches, well prepared, could now be effectively employed. The first attempts were somewhat crude, but in consequence of the cleverness and intelligence of the workmen, by consulting and recalling the models which they had seen, and by emulating each other, the possessions of the colony were soon increased by several baskets of different sizes. The storeroom was provided with them and in special baskets Neb placed his collections of rhizomes, stone-pine almonds, etc. During the last week of the month of August the weather moderated again. The temperature fell a little, and the tempest abated. The colonists sallied out directly. There was certainly two feet of snow on the shore, but they were able to walk without much difficulty on the hardened surface. Cyrus Harding and his companions climbed Prospect Heights. What a change! The woods, which they had left green, especially in the part at which the firs predominated, had disappeared under a uniform color. All was white, from the summit of Mount Franklin to the shore, the forest, the plains, the lake, the river. The waters of the Mercy flowed under a roof of ice, which at each rising and ebbing of the tide broke up with loud crashes. 
Numerous birds fluttered over the frozen surface of the lake. Ducks and snipe, teal and guillemot, were assembled in thousands. The rocks among which the cascade flowed were bristling with icicles. One might have said that the water escaped by a monstrous gargoyle, shaped with all the imagination of an artist of the Renaissance. As to the damage caused by the storm in the forest, that could not as yet be ascertained. They would have to wait till the snowy covering was dissipated. Gideon Spilett, Pencroft, and Herbert did not miss this opportunity of going to visit their traps. They did not find them easily under the snow with which they were covered. They had also to be careful not to fall into one or other of them, which would have been both dangerous and humiliating, to be taken in their own snares. But happily they avoided this unpleasantness, and found their traps perfectly intact. No animal had fallen into them, and yet the footprints in the neighborhood were very numerous, among others certain very clear marks of claws. Herbert did not hesitate to affirm that some animal of the feline species had passed there, which justified the engineer's opinion that dangerous beasts existed in Lincoln Island. These animals doubtless generally lived in the forests of the far west, but, pressed by hunger, they had ventured as far as Prospect Heights. Perhaps they had smelled out the inhabitants of Granite House. "'Now what are these feline creatures?' asked Pencroft. "'They are tigers,' replied Herbert. "'I thought those beasts were only found in hot countries.' "'On the new continent,' replied the lad, "'they are found from Mexico to the pampas of Buenos Aires. Now, as Lincoln Island is nearly under the same latitude as the provinces of La Plata, it is not surprising that tigers are to be met with in it.' "'Well, we must look out for them,' replied Pencroft. However, the snow soon disappeared, quickly dissolving under the influence of the rising temperature. Rain fell, and the sheet of white soon vanished. Notwithstanding the bad weather, the settlers renewed their stores of different things—stone pine almonds, rhizomes, syrup from the maple tree, for the vegetable part, rabbits from the warren, agoutis, and kangaroos, for the animal part. This necessitated several excursions into the forest, and they found that a great number of trees had been blown down by the last hurricane. Pencroft and Neb also pushed with a cart as far as the vein of coal, and brought back several tons of fuel. They saw in passing that the pottery kiln had been severely damaged by the wind, at least six feet of it having been blown off. At the same time as the coal, the store of wood was renewed at Granite House, and they profited by the current of the Mercy having again become free to float down several rafts. They could see that the cold period was not ended. A visit was also paid to the chimneys, and the settlers could not but congratulate themselves on not having been living there during the hurricane. The sea had left unquestionable traces of its ravages. Sweeping over the islet, it had furiously assailed the passages, half filling them with sand, while thick beds of seaweed covered the rocks. While Neb, Herbert, and Pencroft hunted or collected wood, Cyrus Harding and Gideon Spilett busied themselves in putting the chimneys to rights, and they found the forge and the bellows almost unhurt, protected as they had been from the first by the heaps of sand. The store of fuel had not been made uselessly. 
The settlers had not done with the rigorous cold. It is known that, in the northern hemisphere, the month of February is principally distinguished by rapid fallings of the temperature. It is the same in the southern hemisphere, and the end of the month of August, which is the February of North America, does not escape this climatic law. About the 25th, after another change from snow to rain, the wind shifted to the southeast, and the cold became suddenly very severe. According to the engineer's calculation, the mercurial column of a Fahrenheit thermometer would not have marked less than eight degrees below zero, and this intense cold, rendered still more painful by a sharp gale, lasted for several days. The colonists were again shut up in Granite House, and as it was necessary to hermetically seal all the openings of the façade, only leaving a narrow passage for renewing the air, the consumption of candles was considerable. To economize them, the cavern was often only lighted by the blazing hearths, on which fuel was not spared. Several times, one or other of the settlers descended to the beach in the midst of ice, which the waves heaped up at each tide, but they soon climbed up again to Granite House, and it was not without pain and difficulty that their hands could hold to the rounds of the ladder. In consequence of the intense cold, their fingers felt as if burned when they touched the rounds. To occupy the leisure hours, which the tenants of Granite House now had at their disposal, Cyrus Harding undertook an operation which could be performed indoors. We know that the settlers had no other sugar at their disposal than the liquid substance which they drew from the maple, by making deep incisions in the tree. They contented themselves with collecting this liquor in jars, and employing it in this state for different culinary purposes, and the more so, as on growing old, this liquid began to become white and to be of a syrupy consistence. But there was something better to be made of it, and one day Cyrus Harding announced that they were going to turn into refiners. "'Refiners!' replied Pencroft. "'That is rather a warm trade, I think.' "'Very warm,' answered the engineer. "'Then it will be seasonable,' said the sailor. This word refining need not awaken the mind thoughts of an elaborate manufactory with apparatus and numerous workmen. No, to crystallize this liquor, only an extremely easy operation is required. Placed on the fire in large earthen pots, it was simply subjected to evaporation, and soon a scum arose to its surface. As soon as this began to thicken, Neb carefully removed it with a wooden spatula. This accelerated the evaporation, and at the same time prevented it from contracting an empyreumatic flavor. After boiling for several hours on a hot fire, which did as much good to the operators as the substance operated upon, the latter was transformed into a thick syrup. This syrup was poured into clay moulds, previously fabricated in the kitchen stove, and to which they had given various shapes. The next day this syrup had become cold, and formed cakes and tablets. This was sugar of rather a reddish color, but nearly transparent, and of a delicious taste. The cold continued to the middle of September, and the prisoners in Granite House began to find their captivity rather tedious. Nearly every day they attempted sorties which they could not prolong. 
they constantly worked at the improvement of their dwelling. They talked while working. Harding instructed his companions in many things, principally explaining to them the practical applications of science. The colonists had no library at their disposal, but the engineer was a book which was always at hand, always open at the page which one wanted, a book which answered all their questions, and which they often consulted. The time thus passed away pleasantly, these brave men not appearing to have any fears for the future. However, all were anxious to see, if not the fine season, at least the cessation of the insupportable cold. If only they had been clothed in a way to meet it, how many excursions they would have attempted, either to the Downs or to Tadorn's Fens, game would have been easily approached, and the chase would certainly have been most productive. But Cyrus Harding considered it of importance that no one should injure his health, for he had need of all his hands, and his advice was followed. But it must be said that the one who was most impatient of this imprisonment, after Pencroft, perhaps, was Top. The faithful dog found Granite House very narrow. He ran backwards and forwards from one room to another, showing in his way how weary he was of being shut up. Harding often remarked that when he approached the dark well which communicated with the sea, and of which the orifice opened at the back of the storeroom, Top uttered singular growlings. He ran round and round this hole, which had been covered with a wooden lid. Sometimes he even tried to put his paws under the lid, as if he wished to raise it. He then yelped in a peculiar way, which showed at once anger and uneasiness. The engineer observed this manoeuvre several times. What could there be in this abyss to make such an impression on the intelligent animal? The well led to the sea, that was certain. Could narrow passages spread from it through the foundations of the island? Did some marine monster come from time to time to breathe at the bottom of this well? The engineer did not know what to think and could not refrain from dreaming of many strange improbabilities. Accustomed to go far into the regions of scientific reality, he would not allow himself to be drawn into the regions of the strange and almost of the supernatural. But yet how to explain why Top, one of those sensible dogs who never waste their time in barking at the moon, should persist in trying with scent and hearing to fathom this abyss, if there was nothing there to cause his uneasiness. Top's conduct puzzled Cyrus Harding even more than he cared to acknowledge to himself. At all events, the engineer only communicated his impressions to Gideon Spilett, for he thought it useless to explain to his companions the suspicions which arose from what perhaps was only Top's fancy. At last the cold ceased. There had been rain, squalls mingled with snow, hailstorms, gusts of wind, but these inclemencies did not last. The ice melted, the snow disappeared, the shore, the plateau, the banks of the Mercy, the forest, again became practicable. This return of spring delighted the tenants of Granite House, and they soon only passed in it the hours necessary for eating and sleeping. They hunted much in the second part of September, which led Pencroft to again entreat for the firearms, which he asserted had been promised by Cyrus Harding. 
The latter, knowing well that without special tools it would be nearly impossible for him to manufacture a gun which would be of any use, still drew back and put off the operation to some future time, observing in his usual dry way that Herbert and Spillet had become very skilful archers, so that many sorts of excellent animals, agoutis, kangaroos, capybaras, pigeons, bustards, wild ducks, snipes, in short, game both with fur and feathers, fell victims to their arrows, and that, consequently, they could wait. But the obstinate sailor would listen to nothing of this, and he would give the engineer no peace till he promised to satisfy his desire. Gideon Spilett, however, supported Pencroft. "'If, which may be doubted,' said he, "'the island is inhabited by wild beasts, we must think how to fight with and exterminate them. A time may come when this will be our first duty.' But at this period it was not the question of firearms which occupied Harding, but that of clothes. Those which the settlers wore had passed this winter, but they would not last till next winter. Skins of carnivora or the wool of ruminants must be procured at any price, and since there were plenty of musmons, it was agreed to consult on the means of forming a flock which might be brought up for the use of the colony. An enclosure for the domestic animals, a poultry-yard for the birds, in a word, to establish a sort of farm in the island, such were the two important projects for the fine season. In consequence and in view of these future establishments, it became of much importance that they should penetrate into all the yet unknown parts of Lincoln Island, that is to say, through that thick forest which extended on the right bank of the Mercy, from its mouth to the extremity of the Serpentine Peninsula, as well as on the whole of its western side. But this needed settled weather, and a month must pass before this exploration could be profitably undertaken. They therefore waited with some impatience, when an incident occurred which increased the desire the settlers had to visit the whole of their domain. It was the 24th of October. On this day Pencroft had gone to visit his traps, which he always kept properly baited. In one of them he found three animals which would be very welcome for the larder. They were a female peccary and her two young ones. Pencroft then returned to Granite House, enchanted with his capture, and as usual he made a great show of his game. "'Come, we shall have a grand feast, Captain!' he exclaimed. "'And you too, Mr. Spilett, you will eat some.' "'I shall be very happy,' replied the reporter. But what is it that I am going to eat? Suckling pig! Oh, indeed, suckling pig, Pencroft. To hear you, I thought that you were bringing back a young partridge stuffed with truffles. What? cried Pencroft. Do you mean to say that you turn up your nose at suckling pig? No, replied Gideon Spilett, without showing any enthusiasm, provided one doesn't eat too much. "'That's right, that's right,' returned Sailor, who was not pleased whenever he heard his chase made light of. "'You like to make objections. Seven months ago, when we landed on the island, you would have been only too glad to have met with such game.' "'Well, well,' replied the reporter, "'man is never perfect nor contented.' "'Now,' said Pencroft, "'I hope that Neb will distinguish himself. Look here, these two little peccaries are not more than three months old.' 
They will be as tender as quails. Come along, Neb, come! I will look after the cooking myself." And the sailor, followed by Neb, entered the kitchen, where they were soon absorbed in their culinary labors. They were allowed to do it in their own way. Neb, therefore, prepared a magnificent repast. The two little peccaries, kangaroo soup, a smoked ham, stone-pine almonds, Oswego tea. In fact, all the best that they had, but among all the dishes figured in the first rank the savory peccaries. At five o'clock dinner was served in the dining-room of Granite House. The kangaroo soup was smoking on the table. They found it excellent. To the soup succeeded the peccaries, which Pencroft insisted on carving himself, and of which he served out monstrous portions to each of the guests. These suckling-pigs were really delicious, and Pencroft was devouring his share with great gusto, when all at once a cry and an oath escaped him. "'What's the matter?' asked Cyrus Harding. "'The matter, I, the matter is, I've just broken a tooth,' replied the sailor. "'What, are there pebbles in your peccaries?' said Gideon Spilett. "'I suppose so,' replied Pencroft, drawing from his lips the object which had cost him a grinder. It was not a pebble. It was a leaden bullet. End of chapter. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne. We're beginning Part 2, entitled Abandoned. This is Part 2, Chapter 1. It was now exactly seven months since the balloon voyagers had been thrown on Lincoln Island. During that time, notwithstanding the researches they had made, no human being had been discovered. No smoke, even, had betrayed the presence of man on the surface of the island. No vestiges of his handiwork showed that either at an early or at a late period had man lived there. Not only did it now appear to be uninhabited by any but themselves, but the colonists were compelled to believe that it had never been inhabited. And now all this scaffolding of reasonings fell before a simple ball of metal, found in the body of an inoffensive rodent. In fact, this bullet must have issued from a firearm, and who but a human being could have used such a weapon? When Pencroft had placed the bullet on the table, his companions looked at it with intense astonishment. All the consequences likely to result from this incident, notwithstanding its apparent insignificance, immediately took possession of their minds. The sudden apparition of a supernatural being could not have startled them more completely. Cyrus Harding did not hesitate to give utterance to the suggestions which this fact, at once surprising and unexpected, could not fail to raise in his mind. He took the bullet, turned it over and over, rolled it between his finger and thumb. Then, turning to Pencroft, he asked, "'Are you sure that the peccary wounded by this bullet was not more than three months old?' "'Not more, Captain,' replied Pencroft. It was still sucking its mother when I found it in the trap." "'Well,' said the engineer, 
That proves that within three months a gunshot was fired in Lincoln Island. And that a bullet, added Gideon Spillett, wounded, though not mortally, this little animal. That is unquestionable, said Cyrus Harding, and these are the deductions which must be drawn from this incident, that the island was inhabited before our arrival, or that men have landed here within three months. Did these men arrive here voluntarily or involuntarily, by disembarking on the shore, or by being wrecked? This point can only be cleared up later. As to what they were, Europeans or Malays, enemies or friends of our race, we cannot possibly guess, and if they still inhabit the island, or if they have left it, we know not. But these questions are of too much importance to be allowed to remain long unsettled. No, a hundred times no, a thousand times no, cried the sailor, springing up from the table. There are no other men than ourselves on Lincoln Island. By my faith, the island isn't large, and if it had been inhabited, we should have seen some of the inhabitants long before this. In fact, the contrary would be very astonishing, said Herbert. But it would be much more astonishing, I should think, observed the reporter, if this peccary had been born with a bullet in its inside. At least, said Neb seriously, if Pencroft has not had— Look here, Neb, burst out Pencroft. Do you think I could have a bullet in my jaw for five or six months without finding it out? Where could it be hidden? he asked, opening his mouth, to show the two and thirty teeth with which it was furnished. Look well, Neb, and if you find one hollow tooth in this set, I will let you pull out half a dozen. Neb's supposition is certainly inadmissible, replied Harding, who, notwithstanding the gravity of his thoughts, could not restrain a smile. It is certain that a gun has been fired in the island, within three months at most, but I am inclined to think that the people who landed on this coast were only here a short time ago, or that they just touched here, for if, when we surveyed the island from the summit of Mount Franklin, it had been inhabited, we should have seen them, or we should have been seen ourselves. It is therefore probable that only within a few weeks castaways have been thrown by a storm on some part of the coast. However that may be, it is of consequence to us to have this point settled. I think that we should act with caution, said the reporter. Such is my advice, replied Cyrus Harding, for it is to be feared that Malay pirates have landed on the island. Captain, asked the sailor, would it not be a good plan, before setting out, to build a canoe in which we could either ascend the river, or, if we liked, coast round the island? It would not do to be unprovided. Your idea is good, Pencroft, replied the engineer, but we cannot wait for that. It would take at least a month to build a boat. Yes, a real boat, replied the sailor, but we do not want one for a sea voyage, and in five days at the most I will undertake to construct a canoe fit to navigate the Mercy. Five days, cried Neb, to build a boat? Yes, Neb, a boat in the Indian fashion. Of wood? asked the negro, looking still unconvinced. Of wood, replied Pencroft or rather of bark. I repeat, Captain, that in five days the work will be finished. In five days, then, be it, replied the engineer. 
"'But till that time we must be very watchful,' said Herbert. "'Very watchful indeed, my friends,' replied Harding. "'And I beg you to confine your hunting excursions to the neighbourhood of Granite House.' The dinner ended less gaily than Pencroft had hoped. So then the island was, or had been, inhabited by others than the settlers. Proved as it was by the incident of the bullet, it was hereafter an unquestionable fact, and such a discovery could not but cause great uneasiness among the colonists. Cyrus Harding and Gideon Spilett, before sleeping, conversed long about the matter. They asked themselves if by chance this incident might not have some connection with the inexplicable way in which the engineer had been saved, and the other peculiar circumstances which had struck them at different times. However, Cyrus Harding, after having discussed the pros and cons of the question, ended by saying, "'In short, would you like to know my opinion, my dear Spilett?' "'Yes, Cyrus.' "'Well, then, it is this.' However minutely we explore the island, we shall find nothing. The next day Pencroft set to work. He did not mean to build a boat with boards and planking, but simply a flat-bottomed canoe, which would be well suited for navigating the Mercy, above all for approaching its source, where the water would naturally be shallow. Pieces of bark, fastened one to the other, would form a light boat, and in case of natural obstacles, which would render a portage necessary, it would be easily carried. Pencroft intended to secure the pieces of bark by means of nails, to ensure the canoe being water-tight. It was first necessary to select the trees which would afford a strong and supple bark for the work. Now the last storm had brought down a number of large birch trees, the bark of which would be perfectly suited for their purpose. Some of these trees lay on the ground and they had only to be barked, which was the most difficult thing of all, owing to the imperfect tools which the settlers possessed. However, they overcame all difficulties. While the sailor, seconded by the engineer, thus occupied himself without losing an hour, Gideon Spilett and Herbert were not idle. They were made purveyors to the colony. The reporter could not but admire the boy, who had acquired great skill in handling the bow and spear. Herbert also showed great courage, and much of that presence of mind which may justly be called the reasoning of bravery. These two companions of the chase, remembering Cyrus Harding's recommendations, did not go beyond a radius of two miles round Granite House, but the borders of the forest furnished a sufficient tribute of agoutis, capybaras, kangaroos, peccaries, etc., and if the result from the traps was less than during the cold, Still the warren yielded its accustomed quota, which might have fed all the colony in Lincoln Island. Often during these excursions Herbert talked with Gideon Spilett on the incident of the bullet, and the deductions which the engineer drew from it, and one day, it was the 26th of October, he said, "'But, Mr. Spilett, do you not think it very extraordinary that, if any castaways have landed on the island, they have not yet shown themselves near Granite House? Very astonishing if they are still here, replied the reporter, but not astonishing at all if they are here no longer. So you think that these people have already quitted the island? returned Herbert. It is more than probable, my boy, for if their stay was prolonged, 
and above all, if they were still here, some accident would have at last betrayed their presence. "'But if they are able to go away,' observed the lad, "'they could not have been castaways.' "'No, Herbert, or at least they were what might be called provisional castaways. It is very possible that a storm may have driven them to the island without destroying their vessel, and that, the storm over, they went away again.' "'I must acknowledge one thing,' said Herbert. "'It is that Captain Harding appears rather to fear than desire the presence of human beings on our island.' "'In short,' responded the reporter, "'there are only Malays who frequent these seas, and those felons are ruffians which it is best to avoid.' "'It is not impossible, Mr. Spillett,' said Herbert, "'that some day or other we may find traces of their landing.' I do not say no, my boy. A deserted camp, the ashes of a fire, would put us on the track, and this is what we will look for in our next expedition. The day on which the hunters spoke thus, they were in a part of the forest near the Mercy, remarkable for its beautiful trees. There, among others, rose to a height of nearly two hundred feet above the ground some of those superb coniferae to which, in New Zealand, the natives give the name of Kauris. "'I have an idea, Mr. Spillett,' said Herbert. "'If I were to climb to the top of one of these Kauris, I could survey the country for an immense distance round.' "'The idea is good,' replied the reporter. "'But could you climb to the top of those giants?' "'I can at least try,' replied Herbert. The light and active boy then sprang on the first branches, the arrangement of which made the ascent of the kauri easy, and in a few minutes he arrived at the summit, which emerged from the immense plain of verdure. From this elevated situation his gaze extended over all the southern portion of the island, from Claw Cape on the southeast to Reptile End on the southwest. To the northwest rose Mount Franklin, which concealed a great part of the horizon. But Herbert, from the height of his observatory, could examine all the yet unknown portion of the island which might have given shelter to the strangers whose presence they suspected. The lad looked attentively. There was nothing in sight on the sea, not a sail, neither on the horizon nor near the island. However, as the bank of trees hid the shore, it was possible that a vessel, especially if deprived of her masts, might lie close to the land and thus be invisible to Herbert. Neither in the forest of the far west was anything to be seen. The wood formed an impenetrable screen, measuring several square miles, without a break or an opening. It was impossible even to follow the course of the Mercy, or to ascertain in what part of the mountain it took its source. Perhaps other creeks also ran towards the west, but they could not be seen. But at last, if all indication of an encampment escaped Herbert's sight, could he not even catch a glimpse of smoke, the faintest trace of which would be easily discernible in the pure atmosphere? For an instant Herbert thought he could perceive a slight smoke in the west, but a more attentive examination showed that he was mistaken. He strained his eyes in every direction, and his sight was excellent. No. Decidedly, there was nothing there. Herbert descended to the foot of the kauri, and the two sportsmen returned to Granite House. 
There Cyrus Harding listened to the lad's account, shook his head, and said nothing. It was very evident that no decided opinion could be pronounced on this question until after a complete exploration of the island. Two days after, the 28th of October, another incident occurred for which an explanation was again required. While strolling along the shore about two miles from Granite House, Herbert and Neb were fortunate enough to capture a magnificent specimen of the order of Kelonia. It was a turtle of the species Midas, the edible green turtle, so called from the color both of its shell and fat. Herbert caught sight of this turtle as it was crawling among the rocks to reach the sea. "'Help, Neb, help!' he cried. Neb ran up. "'What a fine animal!' said Neb. "'But how are we to catch it?' "'Nothing is easier, Neb,' replied Herbert. "'We have only to turn the turtle on its back, and it cannot possibly get away. Take your spear and do as I do.' The reptile, aware of danger, had retired between its carapace and plastron. They no longer saw its head or feet, and it was motionless as a rock. Herbert and Neb then drove their sticks underneath the animal, and by their united efforts managed without difficulty to turn it on its back. The turtle, which was three feet in length, would have weighed at least four hundred pounds. "'Capital!' cried Neb. "'This is something that will rejoice friend Pencroft's heart.' In fact, the heart of friend Pencroft could not fail to be rejoiced, for the flesh of the turtle, which feeds on rack-grass, is extremely savoury. At this moment the creature's head could be seen, which was small, flat, but widened behind by the large temporal fosse hidden under the long roof. "'And now what shall we do with our prize?' said Neb. "'We can't drag it to Granite House.' "'Leave it here, since it cannot turn over,' replied Herbert, "'and we will come back with the cart to fetch it.' that is the best plan however for greater precaution herbert took the trouble which neb deemed superfluous to wedge up the animal with great stones after which the two hunters returned to granite house following the beach which the tide had left uncovered herbert wishing to surprise pencroft said nothing about the superb specimen of a colonian which they had turned over on the sand but two hours later he and Neb returned with the cart to the place where they had left it. The superb specimen of a Kelonian was no longer there. Neb and Herbert stared at each other first, then they stared about them. It was just at this spot that the turtle had been left. The lad even found the stones which he had used, and therefore he was certain of not being mistaken. "'Well,' said Neb, these beasts can turn themselves over, then?" "'It appears so,' replied Herbert, who could not understand it at all, and was gazing at the stones scattered on the sand. "'Well, Pencroft will be disgusted.' "'And Captain Harding will perhaps be very perplexed how to explain this disappearance,' thought Herbert. "'Look here,' said Neb, who wished to hide his ill-luck. "'We won't speak about it.' "'On the contrary, Neb, we must speak about it,' replied Herbert. And the two, taking the cart, which there was now no use for, returned to Granite House. Arrived at the dockyard, where the engineer and the sailor were working together, Herbert recounted what had happened. "'Oh, the stupids!' 
cried the sailor, to have let at least fifty meals escape. But, Pencroft, replied Neb, it wasn't our fault that the beast got away. As I tell you, we had turned it over on its back. Then you didn't turn it over enough, returned the obstinate sailor. Not enough, cried Herbert. And he told how he had taken care to wedge up the turtle with stones. It is a miracle, then, replied Pencroft. I thought, Captain, said Herbert, that turtles, once placed on their backs, could not regain their feet, especially when they are of a large size? That is true, my boy, replied Cyrus Harding. Then how did it manage? At what distance from the sea did you leave this turtle? asked the engineer, who, having suspended his work, was reflecting on this incident. Fifteen feet at the most, replied Herbert. And the tide was low at the time? Yes, Captain. Well, replied the engineer, what the turtle could not do on the sand it might have been able to do in the water. It turned over when the tide overtook it, and then quietly returned to the deep sea. Oh, what stupids we were! cried Neb. That is precisely what I had the honor of telling you before, returned the sailor. Cyrus Harding had given this explanation, which, no doubt, was admissible, but was he himself convinced of the accuracy of this explanation? It cannot be said that he was. End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne, Part Two, Chapter Two. On the ninth of October, the bark canoe was entirely finished. Pencroft had kept his promise, and a light boat, the shell of which was joined together by the flexible twigs of the krajimba, had been constructed in five days. A seat in the stern, a second seat in the middle to preserve the equilibrium, a third seat in the bows, rowlocks for the two oars, a skull to steer with, completed the little craft, which was twelve feet long and did not weigh more than two hundred pounds. The operation of launching it was extremely simple. The canoe was carried to the beach and laid on the sand before Granite House, and the rising tide floated it. Pencroft, who leaped in directly, maneuvered it with the skull, and declared it to be just the thing for the purpose to which they wished to put it. "'Hurrah!' cried the sailor, who did not disdain to celebrate thus his own triumph. "'With this we can go round—' "'The world?' asked Gideon Spilett. "'No, the island. Some stones for ballast, a mast, and a sail, which the captain will make for us some day, and we shall go splendidly. "'Well, captain, and you, Mr. Spilett, and you, Herbert, and you, Neb?' Aren't you coming to try our new vessel? Come along. We must see if it will carry all five of us. This was certainly a trial which ought to be made. Pencroft soon brought the canoe to the shore by a narrow passage among the rocks, and it was agreed that they should make a trial of the boat that day by following the shore as far as the first point at which the rocks of the south ended. As they embarked, Neb cried, But your boat leaks rather, Pencroft. "'That's nothing, Neb,' replied the sailor. "'The wood will get seasoned. 
In two days there won't be a single leak, and our boat will have no more water in her than there is in the stomach of a drunkard. Jump in! They were soon all seated, and Pencroft shoved off. The weather was magnificent, the sea as calm as if its waters were contained within the narrow limits of a lake. Thus the boat could proceed with as much security as if it was ascending the tranquil current of the Mercy. Neb took one of the oars, Herbert the other, and Pencroft remained in the stern in order to use the skull. The sailor first crossed the channel, and steered close to the southern point of the islet. A light breeze blew from the south. No roughness was found either in the channel or the green sea. A long swell, which the canoe scarcely felt, as it was heavily laden, rolled regularly over the surface of the water. They pulled out about half a mile distant from the shore, that they might have a good view of Mount Franklin. Pencroft afterwards returned towards the mouth of the river. The boat then skirted the shore, which, extending to the extreme point, hid all Tadorn's fens. This point, of which the distance was increased by the irregularity of the coast, was nearly three miles from the Mercy. The settlers resolved to go to its extremity, and only go beyond it as much as was necessary to take a rapid survey of the coast as far as Claw Cape. The canoe followed the windings of the shore, avoiding the rocks which fringed it, and which the rising tide began to cover. The cliff gradually sloped away from the mouth of the river to the point. This was formed of granite rocks, capriciously distributed, very different from the cliff at Prospect Heights, and of an extremely wild aspect. It might have been said that an immense cartload of rocks had been emptied out there. There was no vegetation on this sharp promontory, which projected two miles from the forest, and it thus represented a giant's arm stretched out from a leafy sleeve. The canoe, impelled by the two oars, advanced without difficulty. Gideon Spilett, pencil in one hand and notebook in the other, sketched the coast in bold strokes. Neb, Herbert, and Pencroft chatted while examining this part of their domain, which was new to them, and in proportion as the canoe proceeded towards the south, the two mandible capes appeared to move, and surround Union Bay more closely. As to Cyrus Harding, he did not speak. He simply gazed, and by the mistrust which his look expressed, it appeared that he was examining some strange country. In the meantime, after a voyage of three-quarters of an hour, the canoe reached the extremity of the point, and Pencroft was preparing to return, when Herbert, rising, pointed to a black object, saying, "'What do I see down there on the beach?' All eyes turned towards the point indicated. "'Why,' said the reporter, "'there is something. It looks like part of a wreck half buried in the sand.' "'Ah!' cried Pencroft. "'I see what it is.' "'What?' asked Neb. "'Barrels, barrels, which perhaps are full,' replied the sailor. "'Pull to the shore, Pencroft,' said Cyrus. A few strokes of the oar brought the canoe into a little creek, and its passengers leaped on shore. Pencroft was not mistaken. Two barrels were there, half buried in the sand, but still firmly attached to a large chest, which, sustained by them, had floated to the moment when it stranded on the beach.' "'There's been a wreck, then, in some part of the island,' said Herbert. "'Evidently,' replied Spilett. "'But what's in this chest?' cried Pencroft, with very natural impatience. 
What's in this chest? It is shut up and nothing to open it with. Well, perhaps a stone. And the sailor, raising a heavy block, was about to break in one of the sides of the chest when the engineer arrested his hand. Pencroft, said he, can you restrain your impatience for one hour only? But, Captain, just think, perhaps there is everything we want in there. We shall find that out, Pencroft, replied the engineer. But trust to me, and do not break the chest, which may be useful to us. We must convey it to Granite House, where we can open it easily, and without breaking it. It is quite prepared for a voyage, and since it has floated here, it may just as well float to the mouth of the river. You are right, Captain, and I was wrong as usual, replied the sailor. The engineer's advice was good. In fact, the canoe probably would not have been able to contain the articles possibly enclosed in the chest, which doubtless was heavy, since two empty barrels were required to buoy it up. It was therefore much better to tow it to the beach at Granite House. And now, whence had this chest come? That was the important question. Cyrus Harding and his companions looked attentively around them, and examined the shore for several hundred steps. No other articles or pieces of wreck could be found. Herbert and Neb climbed a high rock to survey the sea, but there was nothing in sight, neither a dismasted vessel nor a ship under sail. However, there was no doubt that there had been a wreck. Perhaps this incident was connected with that of the bullet? Perhaps strangers had landed on another part of the island? Perhaps they were still there? But the thought which came naturally to the settlers was that these strangers could not be Malay pirates, for the chest was evidently of American or European make. All the party returned to the chest, which was of an unusually large size. It was made of oak wood, very carefully closed, and covered with a thick hide, which was secured by copper nails. The two great barrels, hermetically sealed, but which sounded hollow and empty, were fastened to its sides by strong ropes, knotted with a skill which Pencroft directly pronounced sailors alone could exhibit. It appeared to be in a perfect state of preservation, which was explained by the fact that it had stranded on a sandy beach, and not among rocks. They had no doubt whatever, on examining it carefully, that it had not been long in the water, and that its arrival on this coast was recent. The water did not appear to have penetrated to the inside and the articles which it contained were no doubt uninjured. It was evident that this chest had been thrown overboard from some dismasted vessel driven towards the island, and that, in the hope that it would reach the land, where they might afterwards find it, the passengers had taken the precaution to buoy it up by means of this floating apparatus. "'We will tow this chest to Granite House,' said the engineer, "'where we can make an inventory of its contents.' Then, if we discover any of the survivors from the supposed wreck, we can return it to those to whom it belongs. If we find no one, we will keep it for ourselves, cried Pencroft. But what in the world can there be in it? The sea was already approaching the chest, and the high tide would evidently float it. One of the ropes which fastened the barrels was partly unlashed, and used as a cable to unite the floating apparatus with the canoe. Pencroft and Neb then dug away the sand with their oars, so as to facilitate the moving of the chest, towing which the boat soon began to double the point to which the name of Flotsam Point was given. 
The chest was heavy, and the barrels were scarcely sufficient to keep it above water. The sailor also feared every instant that it would get loose and sink to the bottom of the sea. But happily his fears were not realized, and an hour and a half after they set out, all that time had been taken up and going a distance of three miles, the boat touched the beach below Granite House. Canoe and chest were then hauled up on the sands, and as the tide was then going out, they were soon left high and dry. Neb, hurrying home, brought back some tools with which to open the chest in such a way that it might be injured as little as possible, and they proceeded to its inventory. Pencroft did not try to hide that he was greatly excited. The sailor began by detaching the two barrels, which, being in good condition, would of course be of use. Then the locks were forced with a cold chisel and a hammer, and the lid thrown back. A second casing of zinc lined the interior of the chest, which had been evidently arranged that the articles which it enclosed might under any circumstances be sheltered from damp. Oh! cried Neb. Suppose it's jam! I hope not, replied the reporter. If only there was, said the sailor in a low voice. What? asked Neb, who overheard him. Nothing. The covering of zinc was torn off and thrown back over the sides of the chest, and by degrees numerous articles of very varied character were produced and strewn about on the sand. At each new object Pencroft uttered fresh hurrahs, Herbert clapped his hands, and Neb danced up and down. There were books which made Herbert wild with joy, and cooking utensils which Neb covered with kisses. In short, the colonists had reason to be extremely satisfied, for this chest contained tools, weapons, instruments, clothes, books, and this is the exact list of them as stated in Gideon Spilett's notebook. Tools. Three knives with several blades. Two woodman's axes. Two carpenter's hatchets. Three planes. Two adzes. One twibill or mattock. Six chisels. Two files. Three hammers. Three gimlets. Two augers. Ten bags of nails and screws. Three saws of different sizes. Two boxes of needles. Weapons. Two flintlock guns two for percussion caps, two breech-loader carbines, five boarding cutlasses, four sabres, two barrels of powder, each containing twenty-five pounds, twelve boxes of percussion caps. Instruments. One sextant, one double opera glass, one telescope, one box of mathematical instruments, one mariner's compass, one Fahrenheit thermometer, one aneroid barometer, one box containing a photographic apparatus, object-glass, plates, chemicals, etc. Clothes. Two dozen shirts of a peculiar material resembling wool, but evidently of a vegetable origin. Three dozen stockings of the same material. Utensils. One iron pot, six copper saucepans, three iron dishes, ten metal plates, two kettles, one portable stove, six table-knives books, one Bible, one atlas, one dictionary of the different Polynesian idioms, one dictionary of natural science in six volumes, three reams of white paper, two books with blank pages. It must be allowed, said the reporter, after the inventory had been made, 
that the owner of this chest was a practical man tools weapons instruments clothes utensils books nothing is wanting it might really be said that he expected to be wrecked and had prepared for it beforehand nothing is wanting indeed murmured cyrus harding thoughtfully and for a certainty added herbert the vessel which carried this chest and its owner was not a melee pirate unless said pencroft the owner had been taken prisoner by pirates that is not admissible replied the reporter it is more probable that an american or european vessel has been driven into this quarter and that her passengers wishing to save necessaries at least prepared this chest and threw it overboard is that your opinion captain asked herbert yes my boy replied the engineer that may have been the case it is possible that at the moment or in expectation of a wreck they collected into this chest different articles of the greatest use in hopes of finding again on the coast even the photographic box exclaimed the sailor incredulously as to that apparatus replied harding i do not quite see the use of it and a more complete supply of clothes or more abundant ammunition would have been more valuable to us as well as to any other castaways but isn't there any mark or direction on these instruments tools or books which would tell us something about them asked gideon spilett that might be ascertained each article was carefully examined especially the books instruments and weapons neither the weapons nor the instruments contrary to the usual custom bore the name of the maker they were besides in a perfect state and did not appear to have been used the same peculiarity marked the tools and utensils all were new which proved that the articles had not been taken by chance and thrown into the chest but on the contrary that the choice of things had been well considered and arranged with care this was also indicated by the second case of metal which had preserved them from damp and which could not have been soldered in a moment of haste as to the dictionaries of natural science and polynesian idioms both were english but they neither bore the name of the publisher nor the date of publication the same with the bible printed in english in quarto remarkable from a typographic point of view and which appeared to have been often used the atlas was a magnificent work comprising maps of every country in the world and several planispheres arranged upon mercator's projection and of which the nomenclature was in french but which also bore neither date nor name of publisher there was nothing therefore on these different articles by which they could be traced and nothing consequently of a nature to show the nationality of the vessel which must have recently passed these shores but wherever the chest might have come from it was a treasure to the settlers on lincoln island till then by making use of the productions of nature they had created everything for themselves and thanks to their intelligence they had managed without difficulty but did it not appear as if providence had wished to reward them by sending them these productions of human industry their thanks rose unanimously to heaven however one of them was not quite satisfied it was pencroft it appeared that the chest did not contain something which he evidently held in great esteem for in proportion as they approached the bottom of the box his hurrahs diminished in heartiness
and, the inventory finished, he was heard to mutter these words, "'That's all very fine, but you can see that there is nothing for me in that box.' This led Neb to say, "'Why, friend Pencroft, what more do you expect?' "'Half a pound of tobacco,' replied Pencroft seriously, "'and nothing would have been wanting to complete my happiness.' no one could help laughing at this speech of the sailors. But the result of this discovery of the chest was that it was now more than ever necessary to explore the island thoroughly. It was therefore agreed that the next morning at break of day they should set out by ascending the Mercy so as to reach the western shore. If any castaways had landed on the coast, it was to be feared they were without resources, and it was therefore the more necessary to carry help to them without delay. During the day the different articles were carried to Granite House, where they were methodically arranged in the Great Hall. This day, the twenty-ninth of October, happened to be a Sunday, and before going to bed Herbert asked the engineer if he would not read them something from the Gospel. "'Willingly,' replied Cyrus Harding. He took the sacred volume, and was about to open it, when Pencroft stopped him, saying, "'Captain, I am superstitious. Open at random, and read the first verse which your eye falls upon. We will see if it applies to our situation.' Cyrus Harding smiled at the sailor's idea, and, yielding to his wish, he opened exactly at a place where the leaves were separated by a marker. Immediately his eyes were attracted by a cross, which, made with a pencil, was placed against the eighth verse of the seventh chapter of the Gospel of St. Matthew. He read the verse which was this, For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Mysterious Island by Jules Verne, Part Two, Chapter Three. The next day, the 30th of October, all was ready for the proposed exploring expedition which recent events had rendered so necessary. In fact, things had so come about that the settlers in Lincoln Island no longer needed help for themselves, but were even able to carry it to others. It was therefore agreed that they should ascend the Mercy as far as the river was navigable. A great part of the distance would thus be traversed without fatigue, and the explorers could transport their provisions and arms to an advanced point in the west of the island. It was necessary to think not only of the things which they should take with them, but also of those which they might have by chance to bring back to Granite House. If there had been a wreck on the coast, as was supposed, there would be many things cast up, which would be lawfully their prizes. In the event of this, the cart would have been of more use than the light canoe, but it was heavy and clumsy to drag, and therefore more difficult to use. This led Pencroft to express his regret that the chest had not contained, besides his half-pound of tobacco, a pair of strong New Jersey horses, which would have been very useful to the colony. The provisions which Neb had already packed up consisted of a store of meat and of several gallons of beer, that is to say, enough to sustain them for three days. 
the time which Harding assigned for the expedition. They hoped, besides, to supply themselves on the road, and Neb took care not to forget the portable stove. The only tools the settlers took were the two woodmen's axes, which they could use to cut a path through the thick forests, as also the instruments, the telescope and pocket compass. For weapons they selected the two flintlock guns, which were likely to be more useful to them than the percussion fouling pieces, the first only requiring flints, which could be easily replaced, and the latter needing fulminating caps, a frequent use of which would soon exhaust their limited stock. However, they took also one of the carbines and some cartridges. As to the powder, of which there was about fifty pounds in the barrel, a small supply of it had to be taken, but the engineer hoped to manufacture an explosive substance which would allow them to husband it. To the firearms were added the five cutlasses, well sheathed in leather, and, thus supplied, the settlers could venture into the vast forest with some chance of success. It is useless to add that Pencroft, Herbert, and Neb, thus armed, were at the summit of their happiness, although Cyrus Harding made them promise not to fire a shot unless it was necessary. At six in the morning the canoe put off from the shore. All had embarked, including Top, and they proceeded to the mouth of the Mercy. The tide had begun to come up half an hour before. For several hours, therefore, there would be a current which it was well to profit by, for later the ebb would make it difficult to ascend the river. The tide was already strong, for in three days the moon would be full, and it was enough to keep the boat in the centre of the current, where it floated swiftly along between the high banks without it being necessary to increase its speed by the aid of the oars. In a few minutes the explorers arrived at the angle formed by the Mercy, and exactly at the place where, seven months before, Pencroft had made his first raft of wood. After this sudden angle, the river widened and flowed under the shade of great evergreen firs. The aspect of the banks was magnificent. Cyrus Harding and his companions could not but admire the lovely effects so easily produced by nature with water and trees. As they advanced, the forest element diminished. On the right bank of the river grew magnificent specimens of the Olmaceae tribe, the precious elm, so valuable to builders, and which withstands well the action of water. Then there were numerous groups belonging to the same family, among others one in particular, the fruit of which produces a very useful oil. Further on, Herbert remarked the Lardizabala, a twining shrub which, when bruised in water, furnishes excellent cordage and two or three ebony trees of a beautiful black, crossed with capricious veins. From time to time, in certain places where the landing was easy, the canoe was stopped, when Gideon Spilett, Herbert, and Pencroft, their guns in their hands, and preceded by Top, jumped on shore. Without expecting game, some useful plant might be met with, and the young naturalist was delighted with discovering a sort of wild spinach, belonging to the order of Chinopodiaceae, and numerous specimens of cruciferae, belonging to the cabbage tribe, which it would certainly be possible to cultivate by transplanting. There were cresses, horseradish, turnips, and lastly, little branching hairy stalks, scarcely more than three feet high, which produced brownish grains. 
"'Do you know what this plant is?' asked Herbert of the sailor. "'Tobacco!' cried Pencroft, who evidently had never seen his favourite plant except in the bowl of his pipe. "'No, Pencroft,' replied Herbert. "'This is not tobacco. It is mustard.' "'Mustard be hanged!' returned the sailor. "'But if by chance you happen to come across a tobacco plant, my boy, pray don't scorn that.' "'We shall find it some day,' said Gideon Spilett. "'Well!' exclaimed Pencroft. "'When that day comes, I do not know what more will be wanting in our island.' These different plants, which had been carefully rooted up, were carried to the canoe, where Cyrus Harding had remained buried in thought. The reporter, Herbert and Pencroft, in this manner, frequently disembarked, sometimes on the right bank, sometimes on the left bank of the Mercy. The latter was less abrupt, but the former more wooded, the engineer ascertained by consulting his pocket-compass that the direction of the river from the first turn was obviously southwest and northeast, and nearly straight for a length of about three miles. But it was to be supposed that this direction changed beyond that point, and that the Mercy continued to the northwest, towards the spurs of Mount Franklin, among which the river rose. During one of these excursions Gideon Spilett managed to get hold of two couples of living Galanaceae. They were birds with long, thin beaks, lengthened necks, short wings, and without any appearance of a tail. Herbert rightly gave them the name of Tinamus, and it was resolved that they should be the first tenants of their future poultry-yard. But till then the guns had not spoken and the first report which awoke the echoes of the forest of the far west was provoked by the appearance of a beautiful bird resembling the kingfisher. "'I recognize him!' cried Bancroft, and it seemed as if his gun went off by itself. "'What do you recognize?' asked the reporter. "'The bird which escaped us on our first excursion, and from which we gave the name to that part of the forest.' "'A jacamar!' cried Herbert. It was indeed a jacamar of which the plumage shines with a metallic luster. A shot brought it to the ground, and Top carried it to the canoe. At the same time half a dozen lorries were brought down. The lorry is the size of a pigeon, the plumage dashed with green, part of the wings crimson, and its crest bordered with white. To the young boy belonged the honour of this shot, and he was proud enough of it. Lorries are better food than the jacamar the flesh of which is rather tough. But it was difficult to persuade Pencroft that he had not killed the king of eatable birds. It was ten o'clock in the morning, when the canoe reached a second angle of the Mercy, nearly five miles from its mouth. Here a halt was made for breakfast, under the shade of some splendid trees. The river still measured from sixty to seventy feet in breadth, and its bed from five to six feet in depth. The engineer had observed that it was increased by numerous affluents, but they were unnavigable, being simply little streams. As to the forest, including Jacamar Wood, as well as the forests of the far west, it extended as far as the eye could reach. In no place, either in the depths of the forests or under the trees on the banks of the Mercy, was the presence of man revealed. The explorers could not discover one suspicious trace. It was evident that the woodman's axe had never touched these trees, 
that the pioneer's knife had never severed the creepers hanging from one trunk to another in the midst of tangled brushwood and long grass. If castaways had landed on the island, they could not have yet quitted the shore, and it was not in the woods that the survivors of the supposed shipwreck should be sought. The engineer therefore manifested some impatience to reach the western coast of Lincoln Island, which was at least five miles distant, according to his estimation. The voyage was continued, and as the Mercy appeared to flow not towards the shore, but rather towards Mount Franklin, it was decided that they should use the boat as long as there was enough water under its keel to float it. It was both fatigue spared and time gained, for they would have been obliged to cut a path through the thick wood with their axes. But soon the flow completely failed them. Either the tide was going down, and it was about the hour, or it could no longer be felt at this distance from the mouth of the Mercy. They had therefore to make use of the oars. Herbert and Neb each took one, and Pencroft took the skull. The forest soon became less dense. The trees grew further apart and often quite isolated. But the further they were from each other, the more magnificent they appeared, profiting as they did by the free, pure air which circulated around them. What splendid specimens of the flora of this latitude! Certainly their presence would have been enough for a botanist to name, without hesitation, the parallel which traversed Lincoln Island. "'Eucalypti!' cried Herbert. They were, in fact, those splendid trees, the giants of the extra-tropical zone, the congeners of the Australian and New Zealand eucalyptus, both situated under the same latitude as Lincoln Island. Some rose to a height of two hundred feet. Their trunks at the base measured twenty feet in circumference, and their bark was covered by a network of furrows containing a red, sweet-smelling gum. Nothing is more wonderful or more singular than those enormous specimens of the order of the Myrtaceae, with their leaves placed vertically and not horizontally, so that an edge, and not a surface, looks upward, the effect being that the sun's rays penetrate more freely among the trees. The ground at the foot of the eucalypti was carpeted with grass, and from the bushes escaped flights of little birds, which glittered in the sunlight like winged rubies. "'These are something like trees,' cried Neb. "'But are they good for anything?' "'Pooh!' replied Pencroft. "'Of course there are vegetable giants as well as human giants, and they are no good except to show themselves at fairs.' "'I think that you are mistaken, Pencroft,' replied Gideon Spilett and that the wood of the eucalyptus has begun to be very advantageously employed in cabinet-making. "'And I may add,' said Herbert, "'that the eucalyptus belongs to a family which comprises many useful members. The guava-tree, from whose fruit guava-jelly is made. The clove-tree, which produces the spice. The pomegranate-tree, which bears pomegranates. The eugaceae coliflora, the fruit of which is used in making a tolerable wine, the Ugui myrtle, which contains an excellent alcoholic liquor, the Caryophyllus myrtle, of which the bark forms an esteemed cinnamon, the Eugenia permenta, from whence comes Jamaica pepper, the common myrtle, from whose buds and berries spice is sometimes made, the Eucalyptus manifera, 
which yields a sweet sort of manna, the guinea eucalyptus, the sap of which is transformed into beer by fermentation, in short, all those trees known under the name of gum trees or iron bark trees in Australia belong to this family of the Myrtaceae, which contains forty-six genera and thirteen hundred species. The lad was allowed to run on, and he delivered his little botanical lecture with great animation. Cyrus Harding listened, smiling, and Pencroft with an indescribable feeling of pride. "'Very good, Herbert,' replied Pencroft. "'But I could swear that all those useful specimens you have just told us about are none of them giants like these.' "'That is true, Pencroft.' "'That supports what I said,' returned the sailor namely, that these giants are good for nothing. "'There you are wrong, Bancroft,' said the engineer. "'These gigantic eucalypti, which shelter us, are good for something.' "'And what is that?' "'To render the countries which they inhabit healthy. "'Do you know what they are called in Australia and New Zealand?' "'No, Captain. "'They are called fever-trees. "'Because they give fevers?' "'No.' because they prevent them. Good, I must note that, said the reporter. Note it, then, my dear Spilett, for it appears proved that the presence of the eucalyptus is enough to neutralize miasmas. This natural antidote has been tried in certain countries in the middle of Europe and the north of Africa, where the soil was absolutely unhealthy, and the sanitary condition of the inhabitants has been gradually ameliorated. No more intermittent fevers prevail in the regions now covered with forests of the Myrtaceae. This fact is now beyond doubt, and it is a happy circumstance for us settlers in Lincoln Island. "'Ah, what an island! What a blessed island!' cried Pencroft. "'I tell you, it wants nothing, unless it is—' "'That will come, Pencroft, that will be found,' replied the engineer." But now we must continue our voyage, and push on as far as the river will carry our boat. The exploration was therefore continued for another two miles in the midst of country covered with eucalypti, which predominated in the woods of this portion of the island. The space which they occupied extended as far as the eye could reach on each side of the Mercy, which wound along between high green banks. The bed was often obstructed by long weeds and even by pointed rocks, which rendered the navigation very difficult. The action of the oars was prevented, and Pencroft was obliged to push with a pole. They found also that the water was becoming shallower and shallower, and that the canoe must soon stop. The sun was already sinking towards the horizon, and the trees threw long shadows on the ground. Cyrus Harding, seeing that he could not hope to reach the western coast of the island in one journey, resolved to camp at the place where any further navigation was prevented by want of water. He calculated that they were still five or six miles from the coast, and this distance was too great for them to attempt during the night in the midst of unknown woods. The boat was pushed on through the forest, which gradually became thicker again and appeared also to have more inhabitants, for if the eyes of the sailor did not deceive him, he thought he saw bands of monkeys springing among the trees. Sometimes even two or three of these animals stopped at a little distance from the canoe, 
and gazed at the settlers without manifesting any terror, as if, seeing men for the first time, they had not yet learned to fear them. It would have been easy to bring down one of these quadrumani with a gunshot, and Pencroft was greatly tempted to fire, but Harding opposed so useless a massacre. This was prudent, for the monkeys, or apes rather, appearing to be very powerful and extremely active, it was useless to provoke an unnecessary aggression, and the creatures might, ignorant of the power of the explorer's firearms, have attacked them. It is true that the sailor considered the monkeys from a purely elementary point of view, for those animals which are herbivorous make very excellent game, but since they had an abundant supply of provisions, it was a pity to waste their ammunition. Towards four o'clock the navigation of the Mercy became exceedingly difficult, for its course was obstructed by aquatic plants and rocks. The banks rose higher and higher, and already they were approaching the spurs of Mount Franklin. The source could not be far off, since it was fed by the water from the southern slopes of the mountain. "'In a quarter of an hour,' said the sailor, "'we shall be obliged to stop, Captain.' "'Very well, we will stop, Bancroft, and we will make our encampment for the night.' "'At what distance are we from Granite House?' asked Herbert. "'About seven miles,' replied the engineer, taking into calculation, however, the detours of the river, which has carried us to the northwest. "'Shall we go on?' asked the reporter. "'Yes, as long as we can,' replied Cyrus Harding. "'Tomorrow, at break of day,' We will leave the canoe, and in two hours I hope we shall cross the distance which separates us from the coast, and then we shall have the whole day in which to explore the shore. "'Go ahead,' replied Bancroft. But soon the boat grated on the stony bottom of the river, which was now not more than twenty feet in breadth. The trees met like a bower overhead, and caused a half-darkness. They also heard the noise of a waterfall which showed that a few hundred feet up the river there was a natural barrier. Presently, after a sudden turn of the river, a cascade appeared through the trees. The canoe again touched the bottom, and in a few minutes it was moored to a trunk near the right bank. It was nearly five o'clock. The last rays of the sun gleamed through the thick foliage and glanced on the little waterfall, making the spray sparkle with all the colors of the rainbow. Beyond that, the mercy was lost in the brushwood, where it was fed from some hidden source. The different streams which flowed into it increased it to a regular river further down, but here it was simply a shallow, limpid brook. It was agreed to camp here, as the place was charming. The colonists disembarked, and a fire was soon lighted under a clump of trees, among the branches of which Cyrus Harding and his companions could if it was necessary, take refuge for the night. Supper was quickly devoured, for they were very hungry, and then there was only sleeping to think of. But, as roarings of rather a suspicious nature had been heard during the evening, a good fire was made up for the night, so as to protect the sleepers with its crackling flames. Neb and Pencroft also watched by turns, and did not spare fuel. They thought they saw the dark forms of some wild animals prowling round the camp among the bushes, but the night passed without incident, and the next day, the 31st of October, 
At five o'clock in the morning, all were on foot, ready for a start. End of chapter. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.